ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bond by Numbers. Thank you very much for tuning into this episode. It's back to the film reviews today, and we're going mm. to the unofficial franchise of one. <laughs> never Say Never Again from 1983, the return of Sean Connery. Right, so gentlemen, uh, joining me today, my esteemed co-hosts, of course, uh, Joshua and Jeff across the pond. Hello. Gentlemen, yes, how, hello. How, how are we doing? Oh, doing pretty good, actually, gotta say. Not mm -hmm. too bad. Good, yeah. Lockdown treating you okay? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm I, so I got my so suitcase of caviar, foie gras, and vodka. <laughs> I'm all ready to go. You don't strike yeah. me as a foie gras kind of guy, Josh. Yeah, it tastes good, it tastes good. Yeah, is that how you run your life? If it tastes good, <laughs> it tastes good. Right, okay, words to live by. Bumper sticker to live by. Yeah, yeah, a bumper sticker, but I guess you could make merch for that if you wanted to. Yeah, we're here talking today about Never Say Never Again, and it was one that we held off on doing because, of course, it isn't part of the official Eon franchise, but at the same time, it is very much within the Bondiverse, and we are here to talk about things within the James Bondiverse. So Never Say Never Again was always going to be part of our feature, wasn't it? It was kind of haunting us because we've talked about Kevin McClory and mm -hmm. his um, campaign to get this film made over the past 20 or 30 years, mm -hmm. uh, even though he tried to make it again years afterwards as well uh, with Dalton, I I've been reading. Mm. So it seems like this was some this was something that he just wanted to get right. It I think it haunted him till the end of his life, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he did have a, an increased role in the creation of Thunderball as producer. Well, I mean, we talked about that then. We'll talk about it again today a little bit. But yeah, welcome, everybody. And thank you for uh, jumping on board the good ship. What's the ship this time? The good ship? Uh, flying Disc Disco. Flying, flying, the Flying Disco? No. What? No. The Flying Disco? This, no. Uh, you no, know, oh, he's sorry. mixing between the oh, Flying... Oh, God. He's yeah. he mixed up <laughs> Flying Saucer and Disco <laughs> Volante. Well, Josh, we know what your was, ship is going to be called. Good. That was pretty funny, actually. Uh, I like how you yeah. mix the two together. That was pretty good. A portmanteau, if you will. A portmanteau, yeah. Right. Oh. Saved it with a classy uh, big word. Awesome. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's get straight down to business, gentlemen. We've got a lot to go through here today because we, uh, you know, it, it's been a while since we did a James Bond film review. And although we've given the Bond by Numbers treatment to the three non-Bonds for this season, we are going back now to the full production notes, full plot summary, full money penny scoring uh, of our old days. Do you want to say anything about that scoring system, Josh, before we fire on here? Yeah, so we rate out of 10 money pennies uh, for our scoring, and there are three categories. There is story, acting, and atmosphere. Mm-hmm, 10 money pennies each, yeah. So you can play along at home too. If you haven't watched Never Say Never Again in a while or at all, then why don't you hit pause here, go out, spend a couple hours watching it, come on back and continue the fun with us. I think we've got a good show lined up, guys. I've been quite excited to talk this one through with you. I think it should be it should be oh, fun. Yeah. And mm -hmm. um, if you have quite expectations excited. that this is going to be like a trash fest of this movie, you I would be wrong. Did. I, mm. I like because I, sure I, I, I had never seen it. I know you guys had talked about it before, and I was like, ah, you know what, a remake that's not the real Eon. And I'm like, yeah, okay, it's got Connery, but it's an older Connery at early eighties. There's no we'll Bond see. theme. There's no John yeah. Barry. So I'm like, no, I, I'm not. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking like, I'm like, okay, so how good? It, how, you know, what's this gonna be like? And I, I was presently surprised okay right well let, let's not uh, let's not show our cards too early boys but I would agree that there will be maybe not some hot takes because this 
film does have its support you know it does have its uh, supporters but i think there might be some interesting agreements and disagreements today we often don't we guys we do tend because we're all bond fans we do tend to to side with each other maybe there's a couple of points but not not yeah. much of a disagreement normally and one no, thing that, that's definitely true one thing that we should also mention because i don't think i've actually ever mentioned this is we don't actually usually discuss i mean we kind of you know we all sort of discuss things prior to the recording of the the podcast but we never actually put all of our cards on the tape we don't actually give a lot of how we're going to discuss it Mm -mm. beforehand Mm -mm. so if people are saying like you guys are almost always on the same page that's actually just like (laughs) like, serendipitous yeah i mean really so and if you know if if you look at how the we score things and how it's very similar that's literally just sort of like luck of the draw i guess Mm -hmm. Uh, or we just are kind of on the same page but it's we don't try to be on the same page it's just more you know it just happens that way that we're mm-hmm. i guess we kind of have the same kind of mind uh, because we're all like like he was saying we're all bond fans and yes. we kind of have i guess we have a very similar critical feel to how the films are done yeah yeah so who knows if today that tradition is going to hold up or if we're going to hmm. see some things a bit differently because yeah. never say never again is a polarizing film it, it, is. Uh, it has it its is. support but it's certainly got its critics as well and I think, guys, you know, our listening audience doesn't want to hear us prattle on about too much. No. Just, I just... have a question for you, Scott. Hey, go ahead, friend. Uh, maybe go maybe ahead. This, yes. this, this, this is a good thing to get things going, a good sure. point to make get things going. Because you are the film score guy more so than any of us. Fire. What did you think of Michelle Legrand's score for this movie? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, well, you want, you want me to talk now or you want me to talk about it in, in my atmosphere? Point? I'm curious to see what you thought of the score. So I'm just going to let, let that too. open there. Okay, uh, sure. Because I have, I, I understand why they wanted to make the score different compared to the other Bond films. I know they had to stay away from a certain uh, yeah. motif, mm-hmm. a couple of <laughs> notes or what, ha- or what have you, probably for copyright reasons. Uh, but I'm just curious to see overall what you thought of the score and how it worked in the film. Cool. So I'll just kind of leave that as sort of like a hanging uh, supposition over the whole show. Ah, well, yeah. uh, okay, that's cool. Um, <laughs> I don't mind previewing that with uh, a, a comment or two. In my production notes, uh, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the scoring of the film. And uh, thanks to John Burlingame for that. We used his... Uh, we used his notes from the music of James Bond quite extensively when we looked at the Moog synthesizer and On Her Majesty's wow. Secret Service. And I've gone back to that text to find uh, some information about the scoring sessions for this film. So um, we will see what uh, yeah. my opinion is on that in good time. But it's I, interesting. That's for sure. It is. I had some interesting like flashbacks watching this movie in, in the terms of like when I saw Barbara <laughs> Carrera on screen mm-hmm. as Fatima Blush. I was, where have I seen her before? And then I remembered, like, back in the 2000s and stuff, when I was, like, watching everything involving ancient Rome, like, any kind of series that there that there was. Mm-hmm. And there was one miniseries that I ordered from the 80s called Masada. Mm-hmm. And it started Peter Oh, O'Toole, yeah, that's right. And it was, it was all about, you know, the siege of Masada, of the Jewish rebels during right. Vespasian's reign, right? Yeah. Barbara Carrera played like uh, a Jewish woman or something that was in the Roman camp mm-hmm. in the movie, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. And I'm not. She is 100% in that in that series. She sure <laughs> is. Yeah, she sure is. Yeah. 
Well, guys, let's start then, shall we, on this idea yes. or on the subject yeah. of the film and how it came together. Um, now, you know, if you if you remember our first season uh, Bond reviews, you'll know that Josh usually did the Cubby's Corner section, all about the production notes. We've inverted it from time to time, and the responsibilities have changed again here today. I'm going to take up the production notes. Of course, it's not Cubby's Corner this time. It would be McClory's, what, a mansion? I don't know, McClory's cabinet? Uh McClory's cabinet. Yeah. What about McClory's quarry? I don't know. Okay, that's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah. His quarry being Ian Fleming. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is it though? I mean, how many of these ideas are his, and how many were Fleming's? You know, I think they all ripped each other off, kind of in a sense. I but think did. anyway, yeah. So so let's get into it, guys. Thanks once again for joining us here on Bomb by Numbers. We appreciate yeah. uh, we appreciate you coming along the ride with us, and uh, we know there's a lot of support and a lot of interest yeah. in this particular episode for Never Say Never Again. So we hope you're doing well in lockdown. We hope the COVID nineteen beast isn't making you too down in the dumps. And if we have a small part to play in cheering you up or giving you something to listen to, then I think we have succeeded. We can send you a private nurse to beat the shit out of you. <laughs> yeah. All right. What a segue. <laughs> <laughs> never say never again. Never, never say never again. In our Thunderball episode from June of last year, we introduced the Irish filmmaker Kevin McClory and we laid out the full details of the debacle which stemmed from his collaboration with Ian Fleming in 1960 that resulted in his gaining control of the rights to the story of Thunderball. Now, True story. Ian Fleming afterwards, uh, when, the, when they couldn't come up with an idea, decided to be a little bit of a douche and just publish his own novel anyway. Yeah, it was a douche move for sure. Um, the story of... McClory gaining rights is an interesting one. Um, part plagiarism, part copyright, part lawsuit, uh, all broken relationships and tiresome court battles. And these things go a long way, or I guess they had gone a long way, in, in tarnishing McClory's name among Bond fans, at least official Bond fans. But the truth is that there is no denying, as Josh intimates, that Ian Fleming did execute a rather dickish move in writing the novel Thunderball without crediting anybody else that helped him build the story. Jack Whittingham and Kevin McClory were there because Thunderball started its life as a screen treatment between the three men. Nevertheless... You can check out that episode on Thunderball for the full information on that subject if if you're wondering now, well, how could a studio make Bond movie in 1983? The answers to that question and many others related to it, you can check out in our Thunderball episode. Uh, but for the purposes of our discussion, McClory won and he retained certain rights to the story and wanted to remake the film for a long time. Even after Never Say Never Again, he was involved in projects to do further adaptations. Warhead um, 2000 or AD right, yep. or something like that, right? That was, yep. was going to be the like next Judge Dredd. I was going to say, yeah, it's not like, because uh, what, what, what was the series <laughs> called? Um, something 2000 AD? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, 2000 AD. Was the, it was the name of the, the pulp magazine that uh, that had a bunch of sort of comics and, and judge dreads like first appearance was a part of that it's a british uh, uh i don't know the proper I, term I, some of our uh, uh listeners would know the proper term but it was almost kind of like a a pulp science fiction magazine that had a bunch of different uh, uh comics and, and, okay. and stories cool. that's speaking cool. of science fiction uh you're not talking about mystery uh, mystery uh, theater 2000 are you mystery no no no, no. 2000 uh, <laughs> well yeah, yeah. No, or transylvania 65000 
that's good. Oh, oh yeah. All right. Well, let's let's talk then. Two episodes in a row now, so let's just leave yeah. it at that. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> I do apologize. Yeah. Uh, one of the first, uh, perhaps the earliest remake that uh, McClory tried to do, or I sh- should say the earliest production McClory tried to get involved in uh, post-writing Thunderball was in 1964 with Richard Burton. Uh, Burton was interested, but legal trouble kept him at a distance and ultimately it came to nothing in 1976 mcclory again um persuaded connery and len dighton um sean connery and len dighton who of course was a huge name at the time still is a huge name in in spy work i mean his books have sold a lot uh spy story yesterday spy twinkle twinkle little spy an expensive place to die you know len dighton has written all sorts of uh, intelligence novels now i think it would be fair to say that he's the cheap man spy writing i don't think that and i think maybe fleming he, was he, he too. likes he likes writing about world war ii likes soe stuff as well like that's mm. one of the main things that he focuses on in his writing i find well you mentioned uh-huh. warhead right um they collaborated, Connery and Dighton collaborated on a screenplay for a remake of Thunderball called Warhead, but that was eventually scrapped. Now, just watch this space. I'll get back to this point in a few moments. But in his Rolling Stone interview from 1983, which was used to promote Never Say Never Again, Connery remembers the details of this early story. We had all sorts of exotic events. Those airplanes that were disappearing over the Bermuda Triangle, we had Spectre doing that. There was a fantastic fleet of planes under the sea, a whole world of stuff. They were going to attack the financial nerve center of the United States by going through the sewers of New York, which you can do all the way to Wall Street. Hmm, I don't know, boys, what do you think? Uh, Downed planes from the Bermuda Triangle, uh, crawling through the sewers, Spectre agents taking out Wall Street. What do you make? Would 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 that have taken off? To be, to be honest, uh, well, maybe I, it did I 10 years it. later. I'll put it yeah. that way. <laughs> you know what it sounds like to me? Uh, it kind of reminds me, too, of Wall Street and taking over. That reminds me of Die Hard with a Vengeance. Uh, I, I would watch it. I would say, like, for, like, a, a late 80s, early 90s film, it would probably be a blast. Probably or, would. Yeah. Or, or a modern-day Gerard Butler film. I don't know, like, <laughs> yeah. Wall Street has Angel fallen. Has fallen. Yeah, like Wall that. Street has fallen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally perfectly or his character in those movies. And so does that mean that Morgan Freeman's going to be like like Spectre then? Because isn't he's like the president? He it could be like a um, what do you call it? An anthology series. So he's just like the time he's a villain. <laughs> or something. I, I I think you know like even there might be some you know, mileage like, in that. Yeah, I think Morgan Freeman could 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 play a person of color, Blofeld, mm-hmm. no problem. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Especially, especially in today's climate too, you know. It might, it might be especially, you don't even have to show his face; you just have his voice, right? Because yeah. then people would honestly think it's going to be like, "What is this? A March of the Penguins?" Mm. Because they just hear his voice. So it's always oh, going to be a documentary. You're like, "No, no, no, no." Disembodied Morgan Freeman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or Samuel Jackson could have done the role too. I interesting, interesting. Yeah. All right, let's bring it back. But that, I don't know. That would be pretty. Uh, that'd be pretty fun. That'd be cool. Well, now, I 19- understand this copyright issue. That, this is the reason why, like, when Blofeld, so to speak, appears in Free Eyes Only, he's never mentioned by name. They can't show his face or show that it's Blofeld any any way. The, the audience only has to guess that it's Blofeld controlling Bond's cop, helicopter in Free Eyes Only. Mm-hmm. And I understand that it was wasn't until like after McClory died that is that his his family uh, gave the rights back to MGM or to uh, Eon, anyways. So that would be because they could use Blofeld in in the movie Spectre. That's right. Yep, you're absolutely correct. Yeah. Uh, following that sort of 
it's, it wasn't botched, but that sort of failed attempt to write Warhead between Connery and Len Dighton. Um, McClory again tried a bit of magic in 1978 with the working title for the project James Bond of the Secret Service. But again, legal issues caused it to flounder. After 1980, boys, McClory gave the option to producer Jack Schwartzman, who had previously acted as executive producer on the Oscar-winning film Being There, starring Peter Sellers, Shirley MacLaine, and Melvin Douglas. Connery agreed to terms with Schwartzman, which included about $8 million in today's cash and some significant control over the picture, extending mm-hmm. to the casting and to the script. Now, the title of the film is credited to Connery's wife, Michelin, in response to her husband's very famous now, perhaps cliched statement that he would never again reprise the role of James Bond. <laughs> That's a great story. I yeah, it's it. pretty. It's a simple but great story, isn't it? it, it yeah, it's... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Connery explained in that same October 1983 interview for Rolling Stone that Bond had become, quote, a Frank Frankenstein role, and he cited <laughs> he cited curiosity as the reason why he returned to the role of 007. Connery mentioned Thunderball as being the start of the end for him, when after shooting from 6pm to 6am, he'd head back to the hotel, only to find a league of journalists to deal with who had been promised A, B, and C from, and I quote, I don't know who, but he does know, or at least <laughs> yeah, he does sounds, blame. With that answer, he knows. Yeah. It's yes. yeah, and I mean his the, the chip on the shoulder was uh, I think fairly transparent. He wasn't shy. Prior to that, argue that prior to this film, I would say that Thunderball was like his last good Bond appearance because afterwards he kind of phoned it in. Yep. Oh wow, that's awesome. Well, I mean, we talked yeah. about that in our other two episodes. Sure. I we think, sure did. I think that uh, the low point of his acting was in. Uh, you'll live twice although there's some great stuff in that film and it is still a very seminal bond film i think he's he has a bit more fun in diamonds than he does in you know you'll live twice and i just think japan and that that sort of the celebrity consumption when he hit the shores over there i think that just wore him right out didn't it but i, I can imagine yeah. This is sort of what happened in Thunderball form a little bit, too. He, he wasn't shy about calling out the producers and the studio for their treatment of clawing back profits and chasing money by using their actors as pawns. And, you know, in fairness to Connery, that's something that he has always been... He's been, always been very conscious of and always been very critical of, this idea of using your stars to milk what you can for the studio pocket. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why on the red carpets he's got such a nefarious reputation. And one of the reasons, I think, as well, why he didn't get along so uh, famously with the director and the producers of his last film, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which he didn't oh, do a lot yeah. of press for. I just think that there's been a lot of souring uh, in Connery's career. Perhaps, you know, I mean, some fair and some unfair well, of, he's very uh, relationships. Yeah, he too, is indeed. Right? Yeah, yeah. He's confident, which is not a bad thing. Uh, and like from what you're describing, though, it, it, it does make for a very interesting, um, you know, a concoction <laughs> of mm-hmm. what, what can happen. Mm-hmm. Not to but, mention, like, the Barbara Walters interview he had, like, in 87. Uh, that didn't go very well. No, well, I, I think he would probably stand by it, but no, it didn't go I'm very sure well. Mm-hmm. Aside from filing a lawsuit against MGM in 1984 to recoup over $200 million in unpaid profits, Connery also cracked that Cubby Broccoli was the worst Bond villain of them all in an interview. Now, I... 
looked to find this interview. I can't tell if it was either a Parkinson, a Michael Parkinson interview, or a Terry Wogan interview. Uh, it, not really a great piece of reportage from me here telling you this, but I know it's true because I've heard him say it on a talk panel that the when he was asked, well, you know, who's the the, the best Bond villain, and he says Cubby Broccoli, and the audience <laughs> kind of chuckles. This is years after he had left the role. Um, <clears throat> uh, but you know that type of stab was, I think. Uh, always close to the skin of Connery, you know? Sorry. That's all right, buddy. With all of Fleming's connections, Eaton, Sandhurst, Naval Intelligence, all that, everyone figured an Irishman in an English court didn't have a chance, but never underestimate Kevin McClory. Now that's words by Sean Connery. And he's talking there, guys, about, you know, these lawsuits and what chance does McClory have of actually taking on... um, taking on an influential figure like Ian Fleming, because it's true. Fleming was privately educated, came from blue blood family, uh, naval intelligence, tons of connections. And yet in an English court, the Irishman won, you know, it's, it it is, I suppose, a story of some success that McClory and his fans would, uh, you know, herald, right? Right. Oh, for sure. Because he's already like, as you could, the way you were describing, he's already, Basically, it already looks like, you know, the cards have been counted, you mm-hmm. know, like mm-hmm. he's already, if you, if you look how it stacks up, like Fleming's got it all compared to McClory. So mm-hmm. totally. this is quite a big win, um, obviously financially, but also sort of uh, like a, a mental win as well, I guess. Yeah. And I... it, it's it's funny when you watch the credits and when it says like, obviously, because it's his film, he's first and then you have, and Ian Fleming. I was like, mm-hmm. burn, mm-hmm. which obviously <laughs> you knew was going to happen, but I was like, it's, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, burn indeed. The only time he could uh, he, he could the only time he could build do it, first. So why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, anyway, guys, uh, getting back to the production, Schwartzman managed to clear up some of the remaining legal issues surrounding this project, and he brought writer Lorenzo Semple Jr. on board. Now, Semple's credits to that time, at least, included the Batman movie from 1966. Yes, I remember his name in the credits uh-huh, on that TV uh-huh. show. Papillon from 1973. Uh, the Steve McQueen, Dustin Hoffman film, yes. uh, King Kong from 76 and Flash Gordon. Now, Connery was unhappy with what he read from this original treatment, this first treatment, and he asked Tom Mankiewicz to come on board. Now, Mankiewicz will be a focus of one of our upcoming episodes, but in Mankiewicz's own words now, I'm reading from his autobiography, I just want to tell you what he had to say about this, okay? It might be helpful to hear yeah, Tom Mankiewicz. Sure. Later on, McClory and Sean decided to make a picture called Never Say Never Again that was based on Thunderball. Broccoli and Saltzman sued and went to court, and the court ruled that McClory and Connery could make Never Say Never Again, but it had to be a remake of Thunderball. Other Bond characters that were in the other books and had been in the movies were not allowed to be in it, like Q, the guy who made all the gadgets, who was not in Thunderball. Sean asked me to write it. I said, I can't. He was fighting with Cubby. The Broccoli's have been so wonderful to me, and for me to go off and write the picture now, I told I told Sean I thought he was fabulous and I wished him luck. Sean understood. When they finished the picture, Sean called me and asked, would you take a look at the rough cut? We were going wrong in some places. It was for Warner's, and I was at Warner's. I called Cubby and asked, do you mind if I take a look at the picture? He said, please do, and give him every suggestion. I saw the movie, and it wasn't bad at all. I had a couple of ideas. We all went back to Bob Daly's office. Bob Daly and Terry Samuel were running the studio. Terry started off. It seems to me the problem is, and Sean said, now quiet, let's hear from Boyo there. I'm a little older, but I'm still bo- I'm still Boyo to him. Boyo wrote Diamonds Are Forever, which makes no fucking sense at all, and it was wonderful. 
Sean returns to James Bond. Kevin McClory was the producer. A snake in the grass to do that. That's the kind of behavior Cubby wouldn't tolerate. That was not gentlemanly, not ethical behavior. Sean had sued Cubby and Harry and United Artists for money he thought was owed to him. Sean's way of getting back at them. I'd always talk to Sean about, if you ever really want to hang it up as Bond, you should do a farewell to Bond film where he's just a step slower and he realizes the villain he's up against is a little faster and he has to use his wits. The leading lady should be somebody your age, like Sophia Loren, who was still so beautiful. At the end of the picture, you do what Fleming wrote. You go back to Scotland and retire with Sophia. He didn't do it. So that's Mankiewicz on Never Say Never Again and the whole debacle with uh, the Cubby. Well, interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, very yeah. interesting. Right, so Schwartzman, yeah, he cleared up some of these remaining uh, legal issues. And obviously that's Tom Mankiewicz's account there of, of his invitation to do the work. Um, basically just declined out of good faith to Eon. So Connery finally turned to the British writing team of Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet. Here's a fun fact from those guys. They wrote the 2005 TV movie Archangel based off Robert Harris's book about a college professor who investigates mysteries surrounding the death of Stalin and that starred our friend Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig, yeah. yeah. So that was one of Craig's last credits before he took the Bond oh, role. Oh, yeah. And he did a couple in 2005. Archangel, like that, oh, that, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. It's good. Hmm. Well, these guys also wrote The Commitments based on the novel by Roddy Doyle. Is that right? Yes. Yes, Roddy Doyle in 1991. And they wrote a lot of comedy for Tracy Ullman and were very big names in British TV comedy, too. So they had that sort of comedy side, that comedy background, although not exclusively because they wrote Archangel, which was quite a, a complicated text. But anyway, I guess... What we got here is a, a writing team that has succeeded in small screen, particularly small screen stuff. You get that? I wonder if that. I wonder if that's how they um, they got Rowan Ac- Rowan Atkinson mm. for the for that part in the movie. That's a good qu- yeah, good it's point. Very possible because Rowan Cause... Atkinson was early, like this is early on in his career, but he was still doing comedy, and I think it was right around this time, like 80, 82, 83, when he started. Um, I think Blackadder was shortly after, and I think yeah, he yes, was. I, I think was. there's very early Mr. Bean sketches before. I think it was even considered Mr. Bean. If you look at like one of the first Mr. Bean sketches before, um, I think it was around this time. Before, and I think it was almost kind of like an untitled whatever. It was just a character that he played, and it was around mm-hmm. this time. Mm-hmm. All right, well, Connery kept trying to get old Bond names involved and approached Peter Hunt as well. Hunt turned down the offer out of loyalty to Eon, so Irvin Kirshner was hired to direct. Kirshner's name was still currency two years after the release and the success of The Empire Strikes Back, so he seemed to be a good fit, having proven himself capable of controlling drama and action. And also, I guess Kirshner had really strong connections at that level that would help too. Yes, that's true. Um, Octopussy Gentleman was in production over at Eon, and at that time, Roger Moore was looking to leave the role, but he agreed to return when Cubby convinced him that Connery's return insisted upon a known face playing the part. For every action, there is an equal reaction, I guess. Um, You can check out our massive deep dive on the Octopussy episode from season one there. That was in May of 2019, if you're looking for that, scrolling past our our episodes and we go right into the production of that one 
But uh, though it was initially the plan to release Never Say Never Again against Octopussy, Octopussy got the summer billing and Never Say Never Again was released in the fall. The budget for the film, $36 million. It recouped 4.4 times its budget, earning $160 million mm. worldwide. Never Say Never Again did well at the box office. It didn't do quite as well as Octopussy, uh, so maybe a moral victory there for Eon. But Connery did do well out of this. And ultimately... Yes. Profit margin matters a hell of a lot more than critical response at the moment, you know? Absolutely. Uh, in terms of casting, Connery suggested and succeeded in attracting both Klaus Maria Brandor and Max von Sydow for the parts of Largo and Blofeld. Brandor's Hollywood star was rising after uh, starring in the 1981 Oscar-winning Mephisto. And von Sydow needs no introduction, really. Josh, I know you're a big fan of him. You want to chip in here with a little something about our pal Max? Max von Sydow, uh, Swedish actor, very big in the uh, theater and in film, particularly in his early career with uh, the works of Ingmar Bergman. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, a lot of films up until now that he's been in. Uh, You may remember him in Conan the Barbarian, uh, in Dune. You may remember him in Minority Report. And even in the last, in the the recent Star Wars trilogy, uh, he was in The Force Awakens. Uh, He's had a very. Oh, so he was, yeah, right at the beginning. Career, nice. yeah. Lars Porsena, that was the name of his character, I believe. Okay. Cool. Well, it was Kirshner himself who selected Barbara Carrera for the role of Fatima Blush. The Nicaraguan-born Carrera was a model who had moved to New York City at the age of 15 and started modeling for the Eileen Ford Agency. Her young career took her to Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Playboy, and beyond. She posed twice for Hefner's magazine, most recently to, to the film's production in 1982. In addition to a recurring role on Dallas, Carrera starred oh. in two miniseries that helped get her noticed in mainstream America. Oh. 1978's Centennial, which was a 12-part NBC show about the creation of a fictional Colorado town in the late 18th oh. century. And what Josh mentioned earlier, Masada, an ABC production which starred Peter O'Toole and concerned the Roman siege of Masada Citadel in Israel. Carrera was nominated for a Golden Globe for that role, but lost out to Cher for her work in Silkwood. Hmm. Though build higher, Kim Basinger's Domino is the less interesting female character in this film, I think. She had met Connery's wife at a hotel in London, and it was Michelin who suggested to Sean that he consider her for the part. He did, and he approached her. A 23-year age difference, gentlemen, between these two actors is, I think, Ooh. rather noticeable. And right. as great as Basner looks in the movie, I don't quite understand why they didn't go for someone like Mankiewicz suggested, somebody a little bit older, when Connery's Bond is very conscious in the film of wanting to promote things about an older Bond character. So it's kind of strange one. I guess uh, when it comes to beautiful young women, even creative vision has its limitations. Like, I don't know. Do you think, do you think there was those kind of, uh, what do you call those things, where they have like focus groups and they're like, would you prefer an older Bond? Oh, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. No, I'm just curious. Yeah, like the test like, audiences. Yeah. No, not yeah. test audiences. Sorry, focus well, groups. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe too the fact that Octopussy has like Roger Moore and Maude Adams who were like, uh, close to a similar age, I suppose. Uh, yeah, maybe sure. they wanted to. Maybe they wanted to like get the young crowd in there. Maybe, by maybe you're right. Going that, yeah, going that direction possible. with 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 uh, Basinger. Good shout. Yeah, you could and be I, right. I, I, anyway, look, boys. I'm not sure who who wanted Edward Fox for I, M, but or in fact, why he was directed to perform the role the way he was. But his or written, I guess. But his uh, man, his casting was secured pretty early on. Wait. For me, he remains. And I mean, you guys, a, I think you agree. Upon the film? <laughs> yeah, he remains That's one of the silliest nice parts film. of the movie. 
Um, he's always shouting, like, what's with that? Yeah. But any, anyway, we'll get to it. Bernie he Casey. Was like that in a bridge too far, I remember, because he was like, well, oh, yeah, that's he, right. He was yelling in that. I mean, he was an officer, I suppose, giving out the plans of the operation. But then if you look at, like, the Day of the Jackal, who he, he was up against, you know, Michael Lonsdale's uh, character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the Day of the Jackal, he hardly says a word in the whole movie. It's weird. It is true, though. Like, if he's trying yeah. to run this like an officer shouting orders, I mean, his his MI6, to me, his his Secret Service regime is a little bit frenetic, you know? Like, it's a little bit uh, crazy, but, a little bit chaotic. Yeah, I mean, you would uh, yeah. It's almost a parody, almost. And the thing is, though, they do mention, though, that uh, they refer to his predecessor. So obviously they refer yeah. to, like, the Bernard Lee M, I suppose, yeah. uh-huh. in that respect, uh-huh. right? So the movie does work in the sense of being kind of like an a later in Bond's career kind of story. Yes, story. yeah, it does. You're right. You're yeah. absolutely right. And now he's stuck with bureaucrats, basically. And I like uh-huh. the whole idea of him and the guy who must not be named as Q. Mm-hmm. Uh, Algernon. Algernon, yeah. Uh, yeah, Algernon. Yeah, Flowers. Yeah. Flowers are holding on. Uh, yeah, like uh, I thought it was Michael Caine for a second before he appeared. Yeah, on I know his voice. Is, <laughs> I know. I thought that too, actually. Let's talk for a minute, guys, about Bernie Casey. Uh, Casey was approached by Connery on account of Felix Leiter having never before been a black character or played by a black actor. Connery explained to Casey that nobody remembers the Felix character anyway, so maybe a black actor can change that. Now, I. <laughs> I don't know about the politics of that decision. I can't tell if it, the compliment really outweighs the "will you look different so you'll work" type thing. But I'm choosing That's to believe back then. Yeah. I know, but I'm also choosing to believe the former because Casey Casey was a really interesting, a really uh, admirable guy. He died in 2017, and I, I went away to learn a bit about him. But um, he's got some pretty awesome chapters to his life. I don't know how much of Bernie Casey's life you guys know, but I didn't no. know much of this. But no. um, Let's start with his record-breaking track and field career, which led to an NFL career before he moved into acting. Really well regarded by his peers and the product, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the films he did, uh, very well respected. And I think if you were to look at his trajectory, he's not dissimilar to O.J. Simpson, but without, well, without the, you know. Oh. Yeah, the, the without the gloves, the without gloves the gloves and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, that that little sidetrack. He was also a celebrated poet and painter. So I think wow. this guy Bernie Casey enjoyed his life and has a lot of stories, yeah. you know. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, he, Rob... was, he was enjoyable. Like I, I, not, not enjoyable, but I thought he was all right in the role. He was like all he had. Right. Some... Yeah, he, but he, he, but he, he wasn't played, you know, yeah. all that in a bag of chips. But, yeah. he, <laughs> but he was okay. He played the role well as a wingman who. You know, didn't always get what he wanted, right? You could see him kind of frumpy, like particularly when Connery takes off and leaves him on the water with the wetsuit on. You can see him kind of being pissy, and I like that. I, I kind of thought that was cool. Oh, I thought he was more pissy that he just he he lost his friend, that his friend was now like obviously trapped aboard the ship. <laughs> okay, well, that was my yeah, I, yeah, I didn't read it that I, way. I thought but... he left him there. He's like, thanks a lot, man. <laughs> yeah, like, that's kind of how I read it too. That's, that's how I read it. Yeah. No, that's not cool. Really, yeah. Right. I guess you can read it both ways. You can, yeah. Josh, uh, you're looking at it more in terms of, you know, brotherhood and valor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking at it more as like, uh, I missed that opportunity. Which they kind of indicated uh, camaraderie between the two of them because you have that scene when he comes out of the airport and he throws that like ball at him and Nicole or whatever. True enough, yeah. The, the Paula Kaplan uh, replacement. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, right. that's true. I'm you're sure right. Jeff has some words about Nicole. So like, so who was treated worse, uh, Paula or Nicole in that scenario? Ooh. Good comparison. Paul at least got, got a badass scene where she could, uh, where you got the hint that she, you know, she resisted interrogation as far as she possibly mm-hmm. could. Yeah. And then, and then she was killed. Mm. Uh, she was her cyanide. Poor, 
the coal ends up drowning in a waterbed. So. Yeah, it's it's pretty harsh, isn't it? It's pretty bad. Well, foreshadowing, guys, getting back to the casting, foreshadowing his role as Johnny English. Rowan Atkinson plays <laughs> the role of... I mean, this is my descriptor, no one else's, but I can't see much disagreement with this. A twatish prep school sycophant. <laughs> I mean, is that is that fair? I didn't even realize his last name was Small Fawcett. I'm like, how much more do you <laughs> Yeah, need? I know. Yeah, no, that's, right? yeah that's definitely a knock at his junk, eh? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> you see? Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, his histrionics, man, they, they just push the envelope of believable MI6. And you put him with M, and I'm thinking, what kind of office is this? But yeah. it's yeah, almost like like, fault, like a faulty Towers or a, or a spoof. It's a spoof thing, <laughs> isn't it? You think that they should have had Money Penny be a little more stressed because she's literally like... She's like an eagle trying to fly with turkeys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe uh, Rowan Atkinson's character, maybe Small Fawcett was auditioning for like one of the spitting image puppets or something, or like, I don't know, <laughs> Boris Johnson's cabinet or something, man, because Ooh, those, are types, those are the types, those are the types. Hashtag relevant. Yeah. <laughs> those are the I types like of, of fannies All that I was going to show is, I think that seems... Connery and... Uh, perhaps like the writers of you know Connery and Semple and all that, maybe they wanted to show like a bureaucratic version of of like of Universal Exports. You know what I mean? Of MI. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. They wanted, maybe they wanted to make it look like a place that Bond would be just wary of because all the bureaucrats are taking over. Is mm-hmm. this great, yeah. great scene between him and Elgernon where he says like you know, so where are you going off to? Can you say even? It's like the Bahamas. Lucky bloody you, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that, yeah, yeah. It's like, is that the same Q Bond dynamic we're familiar with? Like, Q is glad yeah. to want to come down there and bring quote unquote gratuitous sex and violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's yeah, definitely, definitely. Play, definitely playing on that part of it, like, you know, much like Brosnan did, I guess, mm-hmm. I, of being like the dinosaur. And yeah, although well, Judy Dench's M have held things together much better than this M. That's yeah, that's let's not even go in, into that territory, but. Keeping a, a keeping a, a, up with Q, I mean, his Algernon was played by Alec McCowan, who's an English actor with proper chops and a Shakespearean pedigree as well. His role was pretty rubbish. I thought it wasted the actor's ability. Not yeah, really. It didn't really sure. hit any of the quartermaster like marks. I think yeah. uh, friggin' Jack Roach had a better had a better uh, presence as Lippy uh, in the film. To be uh, honest with you. Uh, no, I, I guess was, we're I, probably I, getting, I, guys. We're probably getting ahead of ourselves here, aren't we? Like, I mean, yeah. we are. I, I understand that yeah. I'm, I'm leading you down to these discussions, but we are but getting ahead of ourselves. Cast, the cast, and we'll yeah. make our point. Well, no, ca- casting's done. Uh, but I just thought okay. some. Anyway, yeah, we, we are. Uh, so filming, okay. Just a quick point on the filming. I'm not going into all sorts of stories because I don't really have. I hadn't really uncovered a lot of stones about the filming, uh, but basically three sequences we had got the french riviera which started on the 27th of september it moved to nassau in mid-november and then finished up in ells tree studios in england in the winter of the spring of 83 the production did have some problems both kirshner and connery fell out with schwartzman over a perceived lack of film understanding um that's my uh euphemism i'm sure they had choicer words but there's a difference i guess Mickey between... Mouse show i think is what mm. connery said about it uh, there's a difference between I guess being a moneyed producer and a film producer where, you know, one's just there pulling the the purse strings and the other one actually understands a bit about how films are made. And I think that if you were to ask Kirshner or Connery, they would say Schwartzman was a money man and was trying an awful lot to be a film man when he didn't know what he was doing. I think I bet uh, Sean Connery missed Cubby Broccoli at that point. That's for sure. 
Well, I don't, I don't know how much you missed Ooh. him, but yeah. uh, he had worked with a lot of different guys and girls up to that point. But I, now, I mean, Wikipedia told me that Steven Seagal was the stunt coordinator who yeah. broke Connery's wrist. Uh, Connery Ooh. was just so fucking hard ass, he didn't even know it until a decade later. <laughs> His wrist was broken. <laughs> what? That's supposed he to be didn't true. Know he broke his wrist. He didn't know until a decade later. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Anyway, uh, last note on the production, guys. Uh, this is some information on the music. And once again, I'd like oh, to yes. uh, recommend listeners check out John Burlingham's book, The Music of James Bond. A lot of these notes come from that, and so Burlingham's done uh, good work here for us. Two episodes on the trot. Anyway. Like Mankiewicz and Peter Hunt, John Barry was indeed offered the job, but he declined out of moral obligation to Eon and Cubby Broccoli. James Horner, coming off the back of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, was the choice of both Kirshner and Schwartzman. Uh, Conner- what could have been? Ah, Connery, however, was also a producer and had, you know, w- w- was kind of exercising some muscle here. Kirshner claimed that a scheduling conflict meant that Horner couldn't do the film. Schwartzman later claimed that Connery rejected Horner. But there's never really been any understanding of why this was the case, if indeed it was the case. Uh, I can offer, though, that if Connery's idea of good music was what showed up in the final cut, then... But that's not that's not a dig against my, uh, Michel Legrand because he is a great composer and he's got a real good track record. I'll just share a little bit of that now. He's a two-time Oscar winner. He wrote the song Windmills of Your Mind for the Thomas Crown Affair and he wrote the score to Summer of 42 and he won Oscars for both of those. He was in London finishing work on Yentl, which would itself win an Oscar in 1983. Both Yentl and Never Say Never Again were in post-production and Kirshner knew Barbara Streisand from earlier collaborations and it was her who suggested Michel Legrand to Kirshner during lunch one day in the spring of 83. Legrand says this, I had promised myself that I would take a vacation at the completion of Yentl. I was completely exhausted. But when Connery himself phoned, inviting him to a screening of the film the next day, Legrand was won over. He recalls Connery being charismatic and warm, enthusiastic about the project, and I guess he felt that attaching himself as a composer to a Bond film would be a good career move. Earlier, Legrand had fully scored Richard Lester's Robin and Marion with Connery, but the director threw it out for a replacement John Barry score late in post-production. Yeah. I, I can't help but wonder if there was maybe a little bit of revenge or reclamation spite operating here too. Robin and Marion was a Connery picture. Uh, Connery probably knew what had happened to Legrand and wanted him to have the job. And this would kind of be like Connery sticking it to the broccoli camp and Legrand would ride the Bond coattails. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, to get yeah. one over on Barry. Um, but Legrand didn't see it really that way, at least not publicly. He deliberately avoided recreating the Bond sound of the 60s. For one thing, the film, as you guys have already mentioned, was barred from using the James Bond theme, just as 1967's Casino Royale had been when it was dueling with The Only Live Twice. Well, he remarked, Legrand remarked, that the idea of Never Say Never Again was to bring a distance, an irony, or a second layer of connection to the official series in relation to Connery's age. Immediately, there was a distinction. Connery also knew the powerful songwriting duo of Alan and Marilyn Bergman, having met them back in 1961 while, while working on Joe Stafford's TV series in London. When asked to write the title song, they immediately agreed. Now, Bergman's remarks about the song, I won't read for you, but they're quite detailed in Burlingham's book, basically saying that the song was too complex to have been successful in retrospect. But we'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. You can check out Burlingham's book for okay. the whole comment on it. Okay. Back to the score, Legrand wrote the score in Paris uh, in June and July of 1983. 
He thought of the film as a collection of, quote, luxurious and shimmering adventures, and he seemed yeah. to score the film more like that, unconnected, disjointed, without continued yeah, themes or that, any that, motifs. I'm sorry, but that, the way that description, that makes a lot of sense then, because does, I was going to yeah. say, yeah, it's all over the place. Uh, it is. And that does that. If that's how what he was thinking about, that's what he's going for. Then mm-hmm. ultimately, that's exactly what he got. So then, yeah, okay. yes. <laughs> you're right, buddy. You know, you're right. I mean, it's noticeable in the film, and yeah, it's, it's so predominantly a jazzy feel. Uh, yes. And I think one of the reasons why people don't like it is because watching Bond up until 1983, you've got a sound, whether you know it's Barry exactly. or not. That's what you're expecting to see, and that's what you're expecting to hear. Sorry. And when this comes at you, you're like, "What?" But you got to understand so much of what they were, so much of what they were allowed to do was restricted from them, and you know exactly. they they had to be really careful. So, anyway, just to finish up here, he recorded the score for a week in August using the London Symphony Orchestra for one day, and the rest of the time with freelance orchestras, uh, about eighty-eight to ninety-three players. Burlingham says. And according to uh, Burlingham's book, Legrand didn't orchestrate everything himself like he normally did. Perhaps this was out of exhaustion. Perhaps this was because he was tired, finishing up Yentl and all the rest of it. He's just too burned out, I think. And so yeah. he, he let others orchestrate a lot of this. And unfortunately for him, some of the corner cutting found its way into the music. The producers were not pleased with the music. Uh, wow. They insisted that Legrand return for another two weeks of rewrites and re-recordings. Wow. He only did one additional day so that that left the director to do what he wanted with the music and sort of put it where he wanted. There wasn't enough time to remake the score or to kind of re-offer the job, you know, re-job it. So um, the, the director said, Kirshner, here, it wasn't the true James Bond score that I had envisioned. I think that that's a little unfair, given how little Legrand was able to manipulate and move within the James Bond score sound. Do you know? Yeah, he was so, definitely restricted. He had to kind of so, navigate it so that he didn't, mm-hmm. you know, hit, you know, hit any, I guess, uh, hot buttons in terms of like, that's of, right. Co- yeah. Of copyright issues, you know? Yeah. So, and yeah. to be fair, like there was some good pieces in the movie. Like I, yeah. I will say standing out, like sure. the, the whole, the whole scoring when Largo uh, is bringing the, the nuke into the mm-hmm. tears of Allah, like yeah. that whole belt music sequence was actually very well done. That mm-hmm. was the strongest part yeah. of the movie for, for me. Yeah, yeah Jeff. That was, uh, that's fine. Uh, I was going to say like, so do you think of all these kind of, all these antics that are going on? Uh-huh. Do you think, do you think this is, because it's not an Eon production and because they don't have these big wigs that are broccoli and all this stuff. Do you see all these things happening because it's not an Eon production? Cause I don't think they would have let all, mm. all these little, these little, you know, uh, you think the Eon producers would have, yeah. Yeah. Been... I think they would have been able to quell it with like, just mm. like, you know, putting their foot, their collective foot, uh, feet down, yeah. if you will, Maybe. and say like, forget it. Whereas, mm-hmm. McClory and, and just uh, because I feel like there's almost I, I don't want to say that they don't they don't maybe they don't have the chops or they don't have the clout mm-hmm. so all these little kind of you know these all these little things are happening uh, and it's, it's causing it's causing like little little tiny little fractures to, to yes. cause little things happen within the production which I don't think would have happened if it was on a grander scale because it wasn't an Eon production. Do you know what I'm I mean? I got you. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I'm just, right. I'm just yeah. putting that out there, but I think... Yeah. yeah. 
Mm. Well, one thing to consider too is like I really feel that like Kevin McClory is definitely no Albert R. Broccoli, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. No, you're because right. Broccoli would, would have like with all this stuff, uh, you know, Connery and LeGrand and Kirshner and Saltzman or or, or Schwartzman, he would not mm-hmm. have let that stuff stand, in my opinion. And I don't think he would allowed the egos that were that were clashing here. I think even even in a way, you could say that McClory kind of let Sean Connery take over the production, from what I from what I understand. Yeah, I think you're right. And maybe Connery was a little out of his depth, too. You know, who knows? I, I think so, too. I think they, yeah. Anyway, uh, these these are questions that I guess we'll never have answered because no. every, everybody <laughs> knew how to make a movie. I mean, the movie was made, and oh, we'll, yeah. we'll talk about its reception shortly and our own review of it in just a couple of moments. Um, so I guess it's really just kind of a fine measurement test, isn't it? How well he or she did in this part or that part. Yeah. Uh, Bonnie Tyler, by the way, Bonnie Tyler was close to singing the title song. Nice. Um, her Total Eclipse of the Heart was a number one hit in the spring of that year. Tyler recalled hearing the song for the first time when she was interviewed in 2006, and she said, I was so excited to be part of this, and then I listened to it, and I was really deflated. There wasn't anything you could do with that song. I presume she meant oh. as, as a vocalist. Uh, I really didn't like it. Now... With that, Offer declined. The Bergmans then nominated Lanny Hall for the song. Hall had been part of the group Brazil 66 with Sergio Mendes. She was married to trumpeter Herb Alpert, and I'll give you a minute, Jeff, to talk about his work if you want. Uh, He had made himself known playing the 1967 Casino Royale theme. The song itself, Never Say Never Again, recorded on the 19th and 23rd of August at A&M Records, Los Angeles. Uh, Michelle Legrand didn't attend. And I'm thinking, one day of rewrites, the producer said, we need you back here for two weeks, this isn't working. He didn't attend the song recording. I'm thinking he probably didn't leave this project with a happy smile. The film's music garnered mixed to low reviews. The French jazziness uh, and the lack of definite hummable theme. Even Alan Bergman felt that the song was probably too complex and definitely not hummable. I think that didn't sit well with most audiences. Bond fans would agree. You asked me at the outset, what did I think of the score? I think it's serviceable. I think it's different. I appreciated the, the, the difference now that I know a lot about what they were allowed and what they were not allowed to do. I appreciate what Legrand was trying to do. Do I think sure. it works? Mm. I think it works about as well as the film, and we'll get to that in a few moments. But, Jeff, I know uh, you know a thing or two about Lanny Hall, if you want to fill the space. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I, I did a little bit of uh, digging, because I, to be honest with you, I really wasn't familiar with her. Um, but then I found out that she's kind of a big deal. I mean, mm-hmm. she did marry Herb Alpert, who, if anyone knows, if you're not sure who Herb Alpert is, if you live in Ottawa... Uh, just go to Value Village and go into the uh, the discount records. You'll find every single one of his records <laughs> seven times over. Um, Probably and, in any kind and, of similar type store mm. across the world. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, he was, he's a bit yeah. like Zamfir, isn't he? So exactly, exactly. And in fact, I found those back to back, if you will, uh, in, in the same box. <laughs> I um, bet you did. But uh, anyway, so Her- I think we're Her- showing our age and, here, by the way. <laughs> uh, Herb Alburn and Tijuana Brass, uh, everyone and their dog. It, it was very popular back mm-hmm. in the. Day. Uh, so uh, and she married him uh, from what it says here in 1973. Again, I don't know too much about her, and uh, because I wasn't when I heard the song, I was like, okay, the song is kind of uh, it's not my cup of tea, but I guess it works for the film. And uh, I just wanted to know who this who this individual was, and she's got a good voice. The video was very. 1980s music video. Oh yeah. Yep. Uh, if, if you you know you want to YouTube with that kind of thing, the song is not bad. It's not my favorite, but it, it for the time it does make sense. I think mm-hmm. it's uh, you know when I listen to it, 
it's not bad. I just think for a Bond film, I don't really like it. But, There's no uh, all-time high. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, hmm. okay. <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. We will. But um, the thing is, is like it is kind of jazzy, and uh, obviously because that's that's her that's her style, and uh, I guess it does make sense, especially if you're married to Herb Alpert. So once I found that information out, it makes a little more sense. Um, and I can, I cannot picture Bonnie Tyler singing this, especially because mm. the way Bonnie Tyler like just you know belts it out, belts, belts it, it out. out. She's got that raspy sort of like you know, um, uh, I don't want to say girl power, but like that you know that, yeah, that real yeah. strong did early eighties. Did she do that hero song as well? Uh, yeah, she. I mean, she certainly got a couple yeah, of hits, did. but yeah, she yeah. did. They could but, use uh, that song instead. This is the time, <laughs> like between like eighty and like eighty three. There was like you know you got Pat Benatar, you got Bonnie Tyler. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could even say you got Debbie Harry with, with uh, Madonna. You yeah, know, you got Madonna and, and, coming and, and up. Madonna, yeah, and uh-huh. very you know very strong female vocalist. Belinda Carlisle. Time. Exactly, yes. the Go Go's, that kind of stuff. Yeah, Sheena Easton. Um, yeah, exactly. We we exactly. can keep going, of course, but we can keep going. No, no, but the, 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 thank you for because I, I was actually uh, cool But that's that's uh, it, right? Like, uh, is it a song that lends yeah. itself to that? I think what you said is correct. That this is not a belter song, and no. it's 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 in a strange place between between kind of like uh, you know lounge lizard porn and. <laughs> this this sort of Bond belter theme. It's just not a belter theme. It's a love song that kind of doesn't know what it wants to be. And anyway, I, I agree with the Bergman's assessment of their own song that it's too complex to be a hit. Yes, and, and ultimately that's what I thought. And uh, just by doing a little bit of research for Lanning Hall, once I figured out who she was, the way she sings it makes sense. And so that, I, I, I totally see that. But yeah, this <laughs> song is not a belter, and I can see why the people that... <laughs> Like Bonnie Tyler said no to it, said no to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, you know. Well, that interview where she, definitely where she fits the score for sure. I, I will say that. Yes, I would agree with that. Well, I don't know. I mean, the, the, there's no motif in the song that's that's carried out in the score. But, no, not. <laughs> what do you What do you mean? Like, like uh, what do you mean? Oh, Temperature. It's it's climate. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's more about just the, I guess, the feel of the movie. Like, yeah. it just seems like they're going for this kind of, like, relaxed, kind of adult contemporary kind of feel with this James Bond. All right, yeah. And I, I yeah. think that was the goal. With oh, they yeah. Wanted, they want to target uh-huh. people of the previous generation who, who, were, who, was, who, who were with Sean Connery. Yeah, yeah. And, and they want to get back to that demographic, I think, and target them. And, and maybe that was the kind of, and they knew they couldn't, you know, go the whole kind of John Barry mm-hmm. type of soundscape. So they had to go in this direction instead. And, they kind of pigeon themselves in, in that whole mm-hmm. soundscape, I guess you could say. Well, let me put it this way. When I hear this song, I can definitely picture a 53-year-old Sean Connery with a turtleneck listening to this song <laughs> in a hotel room. Mm-hmm. That's I can 100% picture that. Can you picture a Sean Connery listening to this song in a turtleneck while doing a rescue kidnapping thing like a, a training exercise <laughs> no it doesn't I, that doesn't fit at it all it just doesn't fit no. but it just doesn't fit anyway at all. i went back and watched that oh, sequence and uh, i re- i realized oh, that, yeah man. holy shit that was a training exercise because if you notice he doesn't actually kill anyone in that whole sequence no like, but the, but what i like though is the guy that he garroted really did a great like i don't know if the guys like if he was also getting 
like reviewed yeah, on camera. Yeah. Everybody like, was getting hey. reviewed. Yeah. And it was, it was like, yeah. hey, uh, fake Arab henchman number five, <laughs> when he was pretending to strangle you to death, you were on. That's right. You did it right. That's, and you, lady, you know, lady, lying yeah. tied to the bed, you nailed the, that. You keep doing it. I really wanted to see after, you know, you're like, because when I was watching that, I even made a note. I'm like, what happened to the muzzle flash in these machine guns? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm like, yeah. and, now sense. This, this and now it makes sense. And now it makes sense. Piece of shit. And then I was like, oh, it's blanks. I was like, thank <laughs> God, because I was like, I can't handle this. And I was like, I can literally oh, thank picture God. you, like almost like Tom Cruise on top of the couch, like going oh, like, man. what the yeah. hell? What the hell? Yeah. You know? I almost pulled the Oprah interview. <laughs> the Oprah. And I, was, yeah. I almost like, I almost threw the table, but I'm like, I have a really good beer that's full. I'm not gonna flip this. Table. I'm not gonna do that. Yeah. And well, then yeah, like exactly. two minutes later, I'm like, the other thing that I. It's like it, it almost triggered me. I'm like, she stabbed him and he looks really annoyed. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, thank God. All I wanted, I'm like, <laughs> I was really hoping that after that, I was like, why couldn't they just show it as being one of those like fake knives where, like, you know, as a kid, you, it, like when you stab someone with the, the toy knife, like it goes into the handle so it looks like you stab them and then it comes back out. That's what it's assumed. Yeah. And I was like, man, he's got a hell of a six pack if he can get stabbed and just be like annoyed. <laughs> yeah. Just I would definitely <laughs> fail dudes who yeah, reacted just... to the frisbee. I would fail those guys. That's for damn right? sure. Because I'm like, they look really surprised. I'm like, wow. All right, hey. gents. It looks like we've right, reached sorry. the point. We are ready to talk about the plot because let's face it, that's exactly what we're doing. So, yeah. uh, Josh, we know you got a great plot summary set up for us. That's the production of No yeah. Never Say Never Again brought up to where we need it. Um, it's over to you, BFG, to tell us a little bit more about the story. I mean, Jeff's got to pop out for a few moments, but he'll be back after Josh's summary, and the three of us will get down to our scoring. So, BFG, take it away. Never say never again. Never. Never see. Shall I keep that up through the entirety of your, of your? No, I did enough in the past. In in the in the past <laughs> that have, uh, yeah, I, I think it played itself out. <laughs> okay, my version hasn't though. No, my mine has, but um, even yeah. still, my take on yours is still quite tiresome. Yes, indeed. Okay, pal, take it away. Tell us all about this film, would you? <laughs> well, that is a challenge, but I will accept it. So this version of James Bond begins with the opening notes of an 80s porn and a barbed wire fence. Oh, wait, that's the 007 logo. Okay. Opening song and pre-credit sequence blended into one. Not even trying to step on the feet of Eon's lawyers, eh, McClory? Connery looks in good shape and is employing some neat spycraft with the exception of the frisbee and blowgun, of course. It contrasts with the strangulations and straight-up brawling he uses to get the captured heiress tied to a bed. Bond dispatches the last of her captors and cuts the rope to free her and then gets a knife in the abdomen from the captive. Mm -hmm. We're sorry, James, but your princess is in another castle. <laughs> in the post credit scene, we meet Edward Fox's M and he seems a new agey eccentric bureaucrat, to say the least. We learn that the credit sequence was in fact a training exercise and a reminder that this is a remake of Thunderball when Bond is sent to Shrublands to eliminate all free radicals. Can he get rid of the new radicals as well? <laughs> oh, wait, they eliminated themselves. Gotcha. Bond feels confident about his bladder, that's for sure. Next in place of Largo infiltrating a bank to Spectre's meeting room, we have the film's Fiona Volpe substitute, Fatima Blush, wearing some outrageous fur, feathers, and leather. It is endearing how the psychopath starts to rush herself, throwing her hat in the corner as if she's late for her boss's PowerPoint presentation. Max von Sydow is Blofeld, but seems to be attached to Eon's white cat. 
Blofeld is having a Zoom convo with Maximilian Largo, played by a German actor this time without being dubbed, who wears his grandmother's sunglasses. Largo confirms the details of the Spectre operation. An American Air Force pilot named Jack Patachi got hooked on heroin, thinks it's Spectre, and for more rock candy, decided to undergo an eye operation to make his retina resemble that of the American president. He is as currently, you do. As you do. He is currently assigned to Shrublands at the same time as Bond and has a naughty nurse in terms of Fatima Blush who will ensure that he gets the job done if he wants his medicine, whatever that may be. Cut to Shrublands when Bond is flirting with this version of Patricia Fearing and is nearly ran over by Patachi's Fatima Blush piloted wheelchair. Fearing suggests that Blush is a private nurse, not a staff member, and then gets her Eon counterpart's intimacy with Bond redeemed with some cute mutual flirting. Connery seems like he's shooting fish in a barrel here and only needs to seduce Nurse Pat with some pate, caviar, and cheese he smuggled in his suitcase to get her in his bed. Oh, that's better than the Yeah, oh, that suitcase. Still better than the original film's dynamic. Poise coitus Bond is awakened to Patachi's dom nurse beating the ever-living shit out of him. Kinky. Naturally, he goes to investigate because he's bored out of his skull. He sees Patachi using that eye-reading thing, head plate thing. I hate those things, so screw its actual name, just thinking of the dreadful anticipation of having vapor sprayed into your eyes. <laughs> but, is but is nearly spotted by Kinky Nurse and gets away from the, from the window in time. He thinks he's out of sight, but using night vision, Fatima Blush spots Bond hiding on the opposite side of the court. She sends that big thug from the runway in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark to dispatch him. Whoa, an IMDb search reveals that this is the McClory version of Count Lippy. Okay, well, it's a knockdown Drake out fight that's well edited and exciting mm. and amusing until the moment someone is impossibly impaled by beakers and graduated cylinders. Also, of course, Bond has urine as strong as alien blood. All those kegels. <laughs> Afterwards, M has a hissy fit, and for some reason, Bond doesn't bring Patachi to anyone's attention, which allows Patachi to continue the plan operation of using his special altered left eye, mimicking that of the American president, to switch the dummy nukes for today's flight test via an executive computer authorization through the eye thingy. Whatever, the fake nukes are switched in for real nukes, and then one flan sterling hijacked by Alargo and his men. Patachi is on his way out via car until he is blindsided by Fatima Blush, who cheerfully throws a live snake into his car, <laughs> causing him to crash at Count Lippy style. She finishes him off with the plastique, but not before rescuing her pet snake. Ah. Uh, Blofeld gives a speech to the UN indicating that he is extorting the nuclear warheads by paying 25% of the oil shares from the superpowers. Spectre has displayed some economic introspection in the, in the 1980s. As the officials debate, Blofeld's kitty takes a screen like Mad Cat in Spectre Gadget. Kitty has Nukeburger. The, Brut the British Foreign Secretary orders M to reactivate the 007. After overseeing the recovery of the warhead, Largo flits off to his yacht, the Flying Saucer. Nice nod to the Disco Volante, but the original has a way cooler name. Sorry, McClory. Meanwhile, Largo creepily peeps on his girlfriend slash hostage, Patachi's sister Domino, as she aerobicizes to make Jane Fonda proud. Can't mm -hmm. quite tell if Largo is more interested in her male physical trainer. Largo gets <laughs> Domino with a necklace, and despite being charmed, we can tell Domino ain't comfortable. Disproven when she asks what would happen if, if he left her nervously, charmingly, and then frighteningly threatens to cut her throat. Domino understandably trembles. Q is now Algernon, which makes me remember that book in high school and that other English class read, but I didn't. It sounded like a science fiction story, and I wasn't really into separate piece at the moment. Oh, well, this guy is an okay Q, I guess. He seems to be friendly with 007 and shares his world wariness on where the, the intelligence business is going. They all seem bureaucrats saving the world. Also, <laughs> Shekhov's exploding pen. Bond, now in the Bahamas, is hitting off with uh, American woman. Hey, it's the Sardinian concierge from The Spy Who Loved Me. When Mr. Bean, I mean Nigel Small Fawcett, I, I knock at his masculinity, perhaps, <laughs> from the British Foreign yeah, Service perhaps. at NASA, ruins the mood with an exposition dump about Largo and assumes we, the audience, are making the connection from Largo to Patachi and to his sister Domino. Oh, wait, what? 
they used suddenly the uh, logo of Maximilian Largo's company for us to make that conclusion. Okay, fine. Oh, the logo placement in this movie, by the way. Sorry to interrupt your plot summary, but man, if I'm a supervillain, I'm just not having a logo. Like, it's just, I'm just not going to do it. Absolutely. I agree with Why you Why would you have a logo if, if, you're, if you want your villainous brand to be recognized yeah, like, across like, the world? Like Rez El Ghul doesn't have a logo for the League of Shadows. You know what I mean? That's right. Uh, <laughs> but you just you just get so easily picked up by the cops. Like, oh, there they are. There, that's them. That helicopter belongs to this guy that we're after. Exactly. Does the Legion of Doom have a have a uh, lo logo? I don't know. It's hard uh, to say. I don't know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe the Disco Volante logo in, in in Thunderball was a little less played out. But um, did it have that flag? It did, didn't it? I Those two flags. It had the two flags, yeah, but I think it was more of a nationality where, like the, uh, where the ship was was registered. If I wasn't yeah, mistaken, I think you're right. I might be retcon. Largo was like a private businessman, like he was a private investor type kind of person. So he never really had like uh -huh. a big corporate uh, organization, like say Largo does. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm just, I, I yeah. thought that, I thought that the logo in Thunderball did pre-exist the logo here, but I can't quite remember. Anyway, sorry, it's not important. It's uh, just a, a little. Yeah, a little niggling. Yeah, I understand. Absolutely. So yeah, this makes a connection between Largo, Patachi, and his sister Domino. It's rather dodgy, but we get the idea that Bond is looking for Largo to get a lead on the missing warheads. One, one on the, is on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. somewhere, and the other to be determined. Bond checks out the quay where Largo last launched his flying saucer and learns he just missed him, but then he spots Fatima Blush water skiing in the harbor. Despite the enormous um, wedgie she is boarding, they meet cute at the time, and Fatima is not subtle about making a meal out of Bond. <laughs> All part of the trap, I suppose. Unaware he's about to dive deep with a naughty nurse from Shrublands. Bond allows himself to be lured out to the site of an old wreck where she uses the local shark population via remote control or sound, radar, mm. what, what have you. What next? You tell me they're going to have sharks with laser beams on them? I wouldn't be surprised at this point. This is all done to dispatch him. Uh, Bond manages to make it out. Fatima thinks he's dead. Doesn't matter. Had sex. You're going to need a bigger boat, Sean Connery accent. Talk about jumping the shark. I'm here all week, folks. <laughs> Quite. Imagine Fatima's chagrin when, dancing to her distress, she sees Bond arrive at the quay and and uh, and be picked up by that single American woman, dressed in what can be called uh, maybe the getup for Liza Minnelli's understudy and cabaret. But we get the pleasure of seeing Sean Connery wearing only overalls. <laughs> this is given to us so we see Fatima overhear his room number. Then we get the signs of the lambs fake out when Fatima blows up Bond's room, but Bond and the American decide to use her room instead. And it's the first time we see Bond mid-thrust, as well as a handsy partner. Wholesome stuff. Anyway, mm. Fatnam probably thinks Bond is dead again. Nitro Small Fawcett is also providing coitus interruptus for all 007, telling us that Largo is on his way to Nice, France. At the airport in Nice, Felix Leiter, played by a person of color, but still written as blandly as he was in the original, meets Bond and a French agent who is the equivalent of ill-fated Paula Kaplan in this version. The motorbike that yep. Q promises yep. delivered to the rented condo in the heights of Nice that Bond, Nicole, that's her name, and Felix have rented out. With a telescope, Bond spots Domino practicing some high kicks on the upper deck of the flying saucer. Sounds really weird. He observes Domino <laughs> entering town and follows her to a spa where he poses as a masseur and in a very awkward scene where Bond is asked to expand upon his area of attempted massage expertise to determine that Let Largo is hosting a chariot ball for children that evening. When the actual masseuse arrives, Bond fucks off, and Domino, already in the thrall of a creepy asshole, is understandably put off when Bond confronts her after sneaking into the charity ball. It is important to note that Bond only went further than usual because of her request. It's still icky either way, mm -hmm. uh, not to mention the fact uh, Domino's uh, change of feeling immediately after being disgusted and then all of a sudden being intrigued, I guess mm -hmm. it would be the proper word for it. It's still icky either way. 
But just when I think Thunderball's Pat Fearing shower scene is redeemed earlier with the plane on the equal field with the version of Pat Fearing we have this scene, at least this Bond wishes to apologize and gets the job done at the same time. So that's an improvement, I guess. Mm, anyway, looking maybe. past the fact that a 53-year-old Sean Connery as Bond picks up a pre-Vicky Vale Kim Basinger's domino in what is a fancy arcade room, such an 80s vibe, he inquires <laughs> to Domino about her brother. Meanwhile, Largo and Fatima are riffing off each other and who will be killed, Domino or Bond? Get a room, you kinky evil fucks. <laughs> Largo seen Bond possibly breaking his thrall on Domino challenges Bond to a match in war games on crack. Despite the cheesy graphics and the context of the time, it even still ends up being a tense scene. Largo's not going to kill Bond with this game, especially in front of all these people. And while there are many painful electrical impulses generated by the combat, which creates tension besides, Fatima watches the proceedings from afar, this time looking like a vampire from the hunger. Even this version of Bond is trend jumping. It's a psychological game that gives this Largo an Alessifer quality who is vulnerable, Bond's influence, and has an ego to match. Klaus Maria Brandura deserves the kudos here. Bond, losing the first match but recovers from his pain to Largo's ch chagrin, decides to play one more game. Great character building on Bond's part, too. Bond wins this time, and Largo is petulant but allows Bond only to dance with Domino instead of taking the money. With that slam, he indicates to Domino that he's willing to protect her despite the chance of payoff, but makes it no difference after the tango. Largo knows Fatima will kill him. He's still humiliated, though, so extra points for Gryffindor, or Bond. Bond <laughs> drives the point home as he uses the tango to tell Domino that her brother is dead and Largo is the prime suspect. Fatima gets her kill orders and is ashamedly happy about it. After, rele receiving, after relieving the poor bouncer that he convinced was going to explode via an explosive device, we get the payoff when uh, it's just really Bond's cigarette case. But the fun in games comes to an end when this version of Paula Kaplan is found drowned in her waterbed. Bond finds her body and finds Fatima cartoonishly cackling as she makes her way. Bond heads to the uh, condo's garage and pursues her in the Q-branch-made motorcycle through the streets of Nice. Fatima supposedly has great organizational skills as she swift up a trap for 007. He falls right into, dis despite, you know, shaking off some Spectre-made obstacles, into the trap. It must be very early morning in the Nice for a Spectre to keep the streets so abandoned. Bond is diverted to a tunnel where they corral him and his bike into the back of a transport truck. But Bond is Bond and zips out the truck and over the roadblock. Fatima and the other car pursue and try to take him off the road, but this being a Q-cycle, it has some tricks of its own, like a tow cable to pull and flip the Spectre car. Bearing on Blush's hatchback, he uses nitro oxide boosters to hop over a boat to the opposite quay and follow Fatima into a warehouse where she gets a drop on him. We're knowing what can be described as what Jack Sparrow's wife would wear and gives credence to Quint's <laughs> comment about bow-legged women at gunpoint. She demands a prostrate Bond to spread his legs as a question, as a position for his castration, but as well to admit she was his best. Oh, Bond see, knows that, when he that, is... Oh, that bothered me so much. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I, I know I'm totally interrupting you, but that yeah. scene, that scene, man, like, what? Like, Foreshadowing of your... Of, of your money pennies, perhaps? Uh, perhaps. I just, why did she, why is that so important to her? If she's really a great a villain, she doesn't care that she's bested by him sexually. Anyway, whatever. Uh, yeah. I just felt that terrible. Anyway, or keep by, going, buddy. Or by another woman, yeah. Or by Bond another knows, woman, yeah. yeah. Bond knows when he is fortunate that Blush is a complete wacko when he allows her to convince him to write her, write her down in his memoirs. Chekhov's exploding pen is here, utilize its fountain blade, entering her like a dart. But it's a slow burn of passion for Fatima as she suddenly explodes in a shower of white frills and leather, leaving only some smoking <laughs> Manola Blahniks. Also, Felix Leiter was watching the whole time. Now who's a wacko? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The very next day, Felix helps Bond sneak aboard the flying saucer. Bond is apprehended, of course, but Large remembers Largo sorry, remembers the break of the lunch invitation the night before and offers Bond a berth. He gives Bond a tour of his yacht, including the Situation Room for what is the Tears of Alice Spectre op. 
Bond observes the allocation of Largo's secret office. He heads for the stateroom, but instead tracks down Domino in her exercise studio. He puts together that the mirror in the studio is two-way and does all that he can to make Largo jealous. Domino, now done with Largo, is more than happy to reciprocate. Largo sees them canoodling, loses it, and enters in the studio acts in hand and goes all Kylo Ren on the studio. Damn, dude, that studio cost a lot of money back then. While Largo <laughs> is having his stalker control freak meltdown, Bond enters an empty control room with and, and sends a message to M. The flying saucer is headed to Largo's estate in North Africa, Palmyra. Palmyra, this time around, seems to be a Moorish castle. Largo drops the nuance of civility and accosts Bond and Domino. He tells Domino that she's right, he might just be crazy, and in true Bond villain style is more than happy to tell Bond where the other Bond is located under the overall under the Oval Office. What? Bond is chained up uh, in a high cell, and then the courtyard below, Domino is tied to a stake in a burqa, about to be auctioned off to some Arabs who swarm on a, in on horseback to start the bidding. Not racist at all. No. Bond uses his Q laser watch to break his fetters, steals a horse from the stables, and charges the crowd, whisking Domino with him on horseback. And I shit you not, is pursued on horseback whilst piano tango music accompanies the insanity <laughs> to the top of the castle ramparts, which he can only escape by, yep, you guessed it, Bond, Domino, and Horsey plummet into the sea below. All three manage to survive and are all still being shot at by the Arabs until said <laughs> Arabs are dispatched from some friendly U.S. artillery. It's Felix in a submarine. We are given a brief glimpse of Horsey dog paddling. Horse paddling? Yep, he made it out. <laughs> With the Washington bomb defused, Domino and Bond enjoy a nice shower together. I like that Domino is determined to kill Largo herself, and this Connery Bond is attentive to her feelings. He must be a breath of fresh air after Largo. They use a tour of Alan medallion to determine where the other bomb is located near the oil fields. Stupid Largo putting the location of the final boss fight right in front of our hero and the heroine's nose. Sidebar, it seems the best way to transport personnel from a submarine to the shore is a human-piloted ballistic missile jetpack combo. Bond and Felix decide on this method of travel, and it looks ridiculous. They <laughs> sure find entrance does. to the caves where Largo and his team are now securing the second warhead. An underground temple is supposedly related to this Tears of Allah thing that lies beneath their oil fields. Okay, sure. Largo and his chief scientist have another Zoom conference with Blofeld, ensuring that victory is at hand. Want to make God laugh? Make a plan, or in this case, Allah. As Largo's team works to get the nuke out, Bond manages to get the drop on them from above, Wiley Coyote style, with a large statuary head inside the temple. <laughs> He's successful and bowls the Spectre team away. Gun starts firing, but Largo at the Tears of Allah at the pool on the lowest level of the temple returns to his sled, which may not have the nuke, but he does have the arming device and detonator. He disappears into the pool with a sled, and before Bond can follow him, he dynamites the exit tunnel. A U.S. Marines team help Felix finish off the Spectre's agents above uh, and, and uh, fly Bond in diving gear via helicopter to the uh, communal well of the nearby oasis. He releases the hook. This time, it takes him directly through the caverns and to the ocean floor. He ambushes Largo on his sled. Largo has, the, has armed the bomb at this point and only has to activate the detonator to destroy the temple, which will somehow destroy a geological key and destroy the oil fields. Pretty somehow, sure Max Lawrence stole somehow. this idea two years later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think this is a Zoran blueprint. Yeah, whatever we get a very, whatever, uh, we get a very, very condensed version of the Thunderball under sea battle, reducing 100 extras to the protagonist and the villain. Largo, <laughs> during the struggle, is trapped against a rock with a sled, and Bond proceeds to defuse the bomb, assuming Largo is neutralized, but Largo, unbeknownst to Bond, is about to skewer his, his grain but still handsome head with a harpoon. Enter Domino, or should we say Book Domino, saving the world and getting a revenge, diving down to meet Largo face-to-face -face with, with a harpoon to Largo's torso. Bond deactivates the nuke, and all is well. Cue the, por the porny music and Domino's cavorting in the pool when Mr. Bean shows up before Pratt falling into the pool, giving the message that M wants Bond to return. Never say, never, says Bond. Never, says Domino, embracing him. Bond smooches her and winks at the audience. Uh, good effort, McClory, but no cigar. Mm -hmm. 
Or is it? Or is there a cigar? <laughs> well, there is a cigar in that one part. That's true. Mm-hmm. Nice work, buddy. Good work. You, you captured the beats of the story there with that one and uh, some of the, yeah. the lighter moments. But man, yeah, we got a lot to talk about. So let's get uh, let's get double O Chapman back in here and uh, let's, hit up our let's money get buddies. him on the hook like the uh, girl from NASA. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. See what his thoughts are about non-Paula. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys, money penny scoring time. Let's get down to business. I am really looking forward to hearing your take on this, and I'm going to fight my corner hard, and I know you guys are going to do the same. Will we come out with the same idea for Never Say Never Again? Let's find out. BFG, I'm desperate, my friend. Why don't you start? All right, so for story, I was veering between six and a half and seven. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with six and a half. I... The story wow. okay. Thunderball is very uh, simplistic, even in the original film. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's not one of the great Bond films or one of the great Connery films either. Uh, even though it's still better than, say, You Only Live Twice and Diamonds Are Forever. Okay, yep, okay. Uh, oh, okay. I think uh, that McClory, in this particular scenario, I think he <clears throat> adapted Thund uh, Thunderball uh, quite well, or he wanted to make it a little bit different. I feel that, you know, by making Thunderball like a NASA Bahamas story, it was better paced than uh, the original film. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Right. Is that just because it moves quicker or? That's exactly it. That's exactly it. It moves a All lot right. quicker. Next mention mm -hmm. is they cut out the overdone diving sequences. Like the yeah, right. That's battle. true. Uh, yeah. I think they executed that a lot better. And I think even then you didn't want to, you didn't want to go mm. back and retread that Thunderball feel. You wanted, yeah. Okay. Yeah. On its own, but still, um, I think what happened in this movie is that even though the, the story writing was simplistic in many ways, uh, I found that it was more into the characters and it was the actual story. And I found the characters kind of took over from mm. the story itself, in my opinion, and that made it more enjoyable than, say, the original Thunderball story as a whole. Okay, so uh, then, as as a success, I mean, in terms of doing what it wanted to do which was change thunderball and make not the same film but uh like a more character driven thunderball you think that this was a success then i do agree. I, absolutely okay i found that uh the domino that appeared in this film was more closer to the fleming version for example and mcclory might not like that but i, yeah, I, I, feel, I, was gonna it's say yeah, yeah. I feel it's true <laughs> yeah all the way up until the very even the one thing I loved in the book was how Domino goes all the way down and kills Largo herself. Like mm. that was a really powerful moment in the book Thunderball. In the and, book, it was. And, and McClory yeah. kept it in there. I liked the nod to it. it. It wasn't as well executed in the film, no. but mm -hmm. I still like how they put it in there. But yep. but again, her pre even though her because the thing is that in the novel, and uh, Domino is aboard the Disco Volante, so you can see how she gets down to mm -hmm. where she does to kill Largo. It makes sure. more sense. But then we're, we're missing that scene somehow that connects. Why would the U.S. Navy allow the Navy SEAL? Yes, to exactly. Yeah, yeah. Why, why would, would they let this girl go down? That was a question I had for sure. <laughs> exactly. I thought that too. Exactly. Like, yeah, I'm glad you gave <laughs> Domino the kill. I'm mm, glad that yeah. you gave her, you know, the ability to save the world <laughs> in her own way, and she definitely deserved it for all the shit that's been through. Yeah. But at the same time, you, you know, that wasn't executed as good as it could be, no. and so I was disappointed on how they did that. Um, mm. And I, another issue too is that, like, even though like 
I found the the fight between Largo and Bond mm. realistic. And yes, it that it was. Yeah. They're underwater wearing masks, so you still lose that momentum, yep. I guess you could yep. say. All the way through, they're playing a great cat and mouse game all uh -huh. the way through. Like these egos bouncing off each other. And it just falls, falls mm. a little bit flat at the end yeah. on how it resolved. It could have had a better ending. Yeah. And I think what yes. really killed yeah. the ending is that sequence before mm. the series of Allah sequence mm -hmm. was oh. the sequence in North Africa. I think then afterwards, you know, it, it's horse shit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then you get kind of like uh a team uh, hmm. yeah. you should have had for the end of the movie in my opinion okay right six and, and a half, half worm settling yeah absolutely okay. it could have been a seven it could have been i think uh based on on ball hmm. being simplistic you wanted to be a little low right. than usual okay but at the same time i think they kind of uh fumbled the ball a couple of times Put in the Thunderball a couple of times. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not going to give it a full seven. I'll give it six and a half for the character development. Okay, because the character cool. Development was on site. I really was really into Largo's character, and we'll yeah. get into the acting yeah, of that obviously. Sure. But he was sure. written well. He's one of the best Bond villains since Lashifa, in my opinion. Yeah. Wait, well, hang on. What do you mean? Wait, 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 wait. Let's stop the train here. You one of the yes. best Bond villains since Lashif. You mean from 2006 to now? Like what you I mean, mean to, you know what I meant to no, say. No, no, dude, I totally didn't. I didn't because we, okay. when we when we did Le Chief, when we did Casino Royale, it was one of our earlier reviews. Do you mean that since we've reviewed on the show, or since Craig has done that film? Okay. Sorry, I would say honestly, I guess with the exception of maybe Elliot Carver and mm -hmm. Le Chiffre, mm -hmm. uh, even like even like Max Zorin and Kamal Khan, like mm -hmm. I think that. Brandur's Largo is mm -hmm. one of the best Bond villains of the 80s. In my wow, okay. of the 80s, yeah. right? Okay, so yeah, and and of he, Craig's actually, era. I, he, yeah, he's he's almost rivaling Fran Sanchez for me a little bit. I would say. Wow, is your seat on fire right now? By the way, is your ass burning? Because that's a hot take, buddy. That is a hot take. He's a liar. <laughs> there are many people who agree with me on his performance. So I, I do I, not I, think I, you are a liar at all. I, I love this. I love where you're coming yeah. from. But uh, I, yeah, I'll be I, honest with you. I'm, no, I'm just I'm really surprised yeah. to hear you say that, dude. I'm glad that you yeah. enjoyed him so much. I did. I thought he was fantastic. Uh, his character was well written. I love his mannerisms. I loved how like the obsessions that he had, like he was a very vulnerable villain. Mm -hmm. His ego, it's he had great chemistry with, yeah, very charismatic, uh, uh, very scary too in his own way. And he, yeah. he uh -huh. made like, he made cheesy lines creepy as hell. Like, yeah. He felt yeah. dumb as yeah. he cut his he throat. Did. Like that was, he, mm -hmm. he played that as if, of you know, I'm just an abusive asshole, mm -hmm. controlled mm -hmm. abusive asshole, and also a villain at the same time. Like mm -hmm. you weren't sure what Domino really thought of him, you know, and then, nope. and, and you tell she was in yeah. an abusive relationship like any girl could yeah. be in that situation. Yeah. But she didn't know how bad he was until, you know? Yeah. Uh, okay, until. cool. And I, I think that was underlined through the whole thing. The charismatic is a... Mm. Charisma is like a veneer for the nasty... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I also like just like his jet-setting nature. He played mm. it off. Yeah, yeah, I uh, agree. Yeah, like, I don't know. Like, I just loved everything about his performance. Okay, and cool. He great chemistry with Barbara Carrera as well, so... Yeah, they did have some good chemistry, yeah, right? Yeah, it's like a Spike and Drusilla kind of thing going on there. I think <laughs> for Buffy fans, yeah. you know what? I I can feel that. I, I'm cool. Okay, I can feel that. Yeah. Why don't Why don't you use your your love of that character performance, then, Josh, and tell us the rest of your acting? What do you think? Yeah. Well, uh, the acting. Okay, mm. so I already talked about Brandur. Uh, yep. He definitely makes it a high mark for me, and for one of the highest marks in the I think that I gave to this movie is in the acting category. Okay. Um. 
even Kim Basinger, who was new, who was new in her career, I could see, you know, the actress, you know, who did it, got an Oscar in LA Confidential coming through a little bit. Mm-hmm. I thought she played, she oh, played really? the role of, of okay. Domino serviceably. And there was a little bit of nuance. I liked, I found that her and Connery actually had a bit of chemistry. It was really weird, but they did. Really? Um, where, where did you see the chemistry? Were they playing with a chemistry set at any point in the film? I missed, did I miss that? No, like when, a, when they come out of the shower. They're holding a beaker. Yeah, when they come out, no, that's Jack Roach's uh, lippy care. Yeah, really? Uh, <laughs> no, but like that's just that scene when yeah, they come yeah. out of the shower, they come out of the shower, you know, and then the, and Emma's talking about you got your hand full and she's like yeah. smiling and Okay. Like, yeah. Okay. Of, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I got their bond. I, I I was glad for her that she's with someone despite his age difference. Uh-huh. You know that was better than the person that she was with, and I felt happy for her in that okay. way. Okay. I, I can I can and meet you halfway there. Although I think the strongest bond uh, relationship in that movie was him and the girl from NASA, uh, hmm. Valerie Leon. She was great in her little role uh, <laughs> as the as the woman from NASA. She was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And if you recall, in The Spy Who Loved Me, she was the concierge in Sardinia. That's absolutely correct. Yep. Yeah. So she was another one of those like Carolyn Monroe, who was mm-hmm. a, uh, I guess, a British pinup girl in the 70s. Yeah. Cool. Okay, man. So uh, what about the minor roles, Josh? How did you feel oh, yeah. about the Algernons and the small faucets? Ed- Edward Fox as M, and those were okay. Rowan Atkinson was funny, and was funny, I guess, in his own little way. Was Enjoyable. he? Was he? They, I, I, <laughs> I mean, really? I, I, I actually found the scene when he was like, uh, where, where he's like, Obviously, he's there to be comic relief, and he uh-huh. worked well yes. in that fashion. Yes, uh-huh. he was annoying. Yes, absolutely. He kind of t- took took you out of the. He brought a different tone to the movie than that it should mm-hmm. have had been in certain scenes. But I guess that's why they wanted okay. comic relief, and they didn't want to make Sean Connery's character too clownish in this movie. They wanted mm-hmm. to give him a little more confidence, which they did, in my opinion, despite his age. He, mm-hmm. he, Sean Connery, I think, is not very strong in this film. You believe that he is a wearied veteran Bond, mm-hmm. pirate of the system. He's considered you know trashed by the system so you know he's kind of works but, himself in his own way or feels yeah. that he doesn't have to and uh but he does his job well uh he's definitely more sympathetic mm. bond than uh, yeah yeah uh, i like the, the the i liked his contempt for largo i like the, the interplay with them mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. that whole sequence for example when they're playing the war games yeah and uh, the yeah. arcade yeah. war games thing, that was a great scene because it doesn't show you know, it's not all about, you know, like the, the, them actually being in danger from the thing that they're using and Bond being killed. Mm-hmm. Lark was like kill him in front of all those people. Yeah. It's all about playing games between the two of them. Yeah, it's cock measuring, yeah. Of its own. Oh, yeah, that's what it was. And it was exactly. well done, yeah. So, you know, I, I, found, I found Connery did a really great job. Okay. Uh, then, of course, I go to Barbara Carrera, who, yeah. even though she was a bit cartoonish, she played it so well that you, you enjoyed her character so much. Right. That she's in. I loved her wardrobe. I loved her. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I didn't like her death scene. I think she, she deserved a better oh. death scene. In my mm-hmm. opinion. Yeah. Yes, I, I would think so. Yeah. And just done for a, as a joke. And I thought her yeah. character yeah. better than that. I guess you could say. Well, it was a little bit a little bit moose and squirrel, wasn't it? A little bit. It moose was. Well, yeah. yeah. Very absolutely, much. Absolutely. So. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think <laughs> of the other thing. Uh, Bernie Casey as Felix Leiter. Uh, he mm-hmm. was, you know, he did his job. I was serviceable as he said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to think of other examples. Um, <clears throat> well, I, mean, I think you've run through the gamut. Yeah, there, I think you've yeah, pretty much I, 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 really, I really have, yeah. What did you go for? You said this was your highest scored uh, category. Uh, my acting was a total of eight. Okay, wow. Oh, wow. Right, wow. So what about atmosphere, buddy? My atmosphere was six and a half. It's okay. like they're trying to do the Bond thing, uh, and they're limited by what they can do by it, but they did it more than, uh, they did a serviceable job. 
That's mm -hmm. a buzzword I guess I'm using for this podcast. Serviceable, yeah. Serviceable. <laughs> uh, but that just seems to be the case with me. I didn't get that Bond feel, unfortunately, because of the music that was jarring. Mm -hmm. There was tones that were off here that didn't give me a Bond feel. I felt like this is like just like it felt old hat mm -hmm. almost when I was watching it. And I didn't get this bent. Yeah. Some of the scenes were really well directed. I know Jeff disagrees with me on this, but I found the motorcycle scene very well directed. How oh, that yeah. was set on stage, like I love the camera angles that they had in that sequence. That was really tense. Right. Uh, there were some tense set up moments when Bond returns to the villa. He's eating the apple, going upstairs, mm. and he finds. Uh, fight scenes were also well directed as, uh, in that sense too. Like mm -hmm. they were, yeah. Yeah, like the Jack Roach, for example, the guy who played Lippy. Mm -hmm. yep, you, that's good. you might remember him from Raiders of the Lost Ark. He was the bald Nazi airman yes, on the runway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, he's a huge guy and he was pretty menacing. Yeah. He was good, uh, yeah. Yeah, he was. Uh, the gadgets in the film, I guess, were, they were set up pretty well, uh, but they're almost, uh, like, it's almost like they had to yeah. include them in as like on a checklist, you know? Yes, like, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. They checked off the box. An afterthought, yeah. I do like the idea of, like, I did like some of the spy craft in the opening sequence, except for sure. the frisbee and the blow mm -hmm. dart gun. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, and some of the weapons that the Navy SEALs were using, like they felt like I was watching like some old British like war movie mm -hmm. because Navy SEALs would not be using those kind of weapons like in that sequence at the shootout at the end. Like, I found all the Uzis. Like, I'm like, I don't see them using Uzis. Uzi yeah, I couldn't figure like, that out. Either. American yeah. ships using Uzis? I don't know. I mean, like, but Uzis were the, were the guns of the '80s action film, weren't they? They, they were well, kind of like that Gatling Navy, guns. Navy SEALs are trained with all types of weapons, so they would know how to use an Uzi. Uzis yeah. were popular at the time. Mm -hmm. I just don't see that being their go-to weapon, especially U.S. troops would use U.S. May, oh, I shouldn't say they shouldn't only use like American guns, but right. at that time, I don't see them using Uzis. Can um, I ask you a question about this this uh, weapon, Jeff? Um, how quickly? Maybe you don't know, but how quickly would a cartridge empty in an Uzi? Oh, like in two seconds, man! Like super quick. Super yeah, quick. Like yeah. oh my god! Especially if you have it on full full auto, man! Mm -hmm. It's like you press it and it's done. Yeah. So it was realistic then in that sequence with Bond and. Felix were out of bullets so quickly. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Right, right. Oh yeah, yeah. I was wondering I like, that when I was watching it because I'm like, shit, man. Like a lot of other films, you would have a lot more time with it, even though you know the Uzi is so fast and furious. But yeah, I also hate how they tease the Walther. Like he pulls it out to shoot oh, like, yeah. uh, Fatima yeah. when she's going down the stairs, but then he, but then she's out, he's out of range or something, and she drives off in her. Was it was, was that a Peugeot? What kind of car was that? Uh, uh, oh, the, the red car? I think that yeah. was a Reno. I think it was a Reno. Reno, yeah, Reno. So, and that's like Reno. a, it was like a, oh, I remember uh, anyone that plays like car similar video games, that, that car yeah. is a monster in uh, Gran Turismo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I can't remember what the, the make of it, but oh, that car is a beast. It, it That is a, like, it's a really, really good rally car. That thing is, uh, like, when I, I was like, I was excited to see that chase because I'm like, yeah, it's a really good car. So, <laughs> So so on a level it gets a six, but I think some of this some of the this I really like the, the the flying saucer uh, that was a really good set that was made, uh, especially in terms of like the logistics on how it spun around from the secret room into the uh, stand studio. It was really that was really that. cool, yeah. And yeah. they borrowed a real yacht from a billionaire. I can't, I don't have his name written yeah. down here somewhere, but um, to do that stuff, yeah, that was cool. And even though like it doesn't really make sense, the whole like Tears of Allah temple was a really good set as well. It was a good set, and years later, Connery would be there when uh, he was looking for the Grail with uh, Harrison Ford as Indiana oh, really? Jones. It's based, no, but it looks the same. It looks the same oh, fucking looks, thing to yeah. me. I'm just waiting for the Knights Templar to come out. 
exactly yeah, yeah really you have chosen poorly oh, uh, that is a kind of cool set though you're right buddy you are right so yeah josh that brings you to a 21 for this film man i'm i am surprised i'm pleasantly surprised to have had uh the privilege of listening to that that was good what did you think of connery's clothes josh let me ask you that i mean we, we made a bit about it on the socials there with the the dungarees and the turtlenecks just mentioned well sorry i'll get it to my and the uh, uh yeah the vests. did we like I, his outfits i liked his uh his like his training uh, outfit was, yeah, was, was it bad um mm-hmm. and when he first appears in nice and he's following domino to that unfortunate sequence in the massage par- parlor yeah, uh, that almost like takes away the good faith that when they redeem the Patricia Fearing uh, <laughs> yeah, scene uh, from the original, uh, I, he was kind of wearing something similar to his mm-hmm. Goldfinger outfit in that, uh, or maybe you only live twice when he's at the Kobe Doc. Right. Uh, oh. Connery, yeah. And did you find too that Connery, especially in the Tango scene, mm-hmm. I got like like older Cary Grant vibe from him a bit as well. Well, I think there's a similarity in the way they look now that he's a bit of an older man and he's green and he's not, you know, he's not trying to, you know, he's matched a hairpiece finally, that type of stuff. But yes. yeah, I guess there's kind of a similarity. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I found that scene was really indicative of his phoning it in. And when I say phoning it in, I don't mean he's not enjoying himself, okay? Because I think he does enjoy himself here. But I think yeah. he's... I think he's phoning it in, and I think that's part of what makes it easy and kind of enjoyable to watch him because he oh, he yeah. doesn't give I a shit. That. And I believe that Connery's Bond doesn't really give a shit. He cares if he lives or dies, but not since From Russia with Love have we really seen him bothered, right? Right. Um, yeah. And I Goldfinger so, maybe as well, I guess. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, of course. The laser and all that stuff. But I I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm I'm starting to step on toes here, but uh, I'm. Surprised, Jaybird, to see a 21 coming out of this for you. Jeff, why don't you say what you thought of this film, starting with the uh, starting with the acting, or sorry, the story. Sure, sure. The story. So, I'm not a huge fan of the plot of the story. I mean, even, I think that was probably one of the weaker points when I had reviewed Thunderball. I know they're different films. Obviously, this is almost like a shot-for-shot shot remake. What do you think, the, though, Jeff? Of like the switch between like how they did the the uh, the, the bombs, like, like the bomb heist. I liked in this it. Movie. I liked it, and the, the the thing. This is what's interesting is that obviously in 1983, the Cold War is still a big thing. Russia is still like you know the bad guy. All this kind of so, and they they made it different because these are um, I guess they, they're cruise missiles, and it was very interesting. So I didn't really have a problem with it. I think the it's eye operation big. though, and like no the, no no I didn't like the eye <laughs> operation at all. Uh, no 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 I didn't. I like liked how they got him. I liked how they explained Patachi was hooked on heroin. That yeah was, yeah like, that, that, that makes a little was, more sense for. For being contemporary, I'm okay with that. Like I was yeah. saying, I was saying to Scott earlier, I didn't, I didn't buy him as a U.S. Air Force pilot. I pay, the way he looked. He was a communications officer, wasn't he? Oh, no, no, yeah. and that, and that's fine. Sorry, I just meant that physically how he looked with his hair and his mustache. He looked more like he was like a. I mean, before he talked, I was like, oh, this guy's definitely like a flight lieutenant in the Battle of Britain. He looks like an <laughs> RAF pilot. He didn't mm-hmm. look like a guy who was addicted to heroin. Who was a communications officer with the U.S. Air Force attached okay. to, you know, the 63rd Tactical, uh, whatever in Swadley. Yeah, the, the, the tactical the, division. Which yeah. is a fictional Air Force base. Which is uh, which I looked up as and it's fake. Yes. Um, so again, the story. I was. I I'm not really a big fan of the story or the plot. I mean, I and again because. You know, it's basic. It's basically the same plot as Thunderball, which I was never really a big fan of. I, I'm going with a five. Now I'll explain 
my thoughts on that. It's like the thing is, is I I think this film works, and with you guys can argue this or not, even our and our fans too. Is like eighties films are eighties films, but eighties films are kind of like the the golden years for action films. And if you look at this movie as an action film, it's quite good. You can argue if it's a Bond film or not. Um, if you're, you know, mm. a real stickler for, mm-hmm. you know, it's because it, it's it's obviously it's not part of the Eon, so it's kind of like an off-brand shoot, if you will. But mm-hmm. uh, as as an action film, it holds up pretty well. The like because we were talking about the action scenes are very well done. Uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, the, the, but you weren't you weren't gushing about the motorcycle chased away Joshua. No, I, I, I didn't. I didn't like it at all. I thought it was pretty cheesy. Uh, I, I thought it was kind of clunky, and uh, I didn't. I, I really didn't like it. Um, but that doesn't mean that I, I didn't like the action as a whole. I thought the action was well done, and it it, it it's at par with uh, early '80s action films. Uh, the, so I was happy with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the uh, the story and the plot, though. I gave I, I like I said I'm gonna say it again I'm I'm giving it a, a five though I mean there's a lot of things that I I did appreciate with uh, the story and the plot like obviously the things that are, are important is um, uh, Brandur or Largo brought a lot to the table and if uh, for a lot of the reviews that were done contemporary or even sort of after the fact. The, a lot of the reviews for the film mentioned how refreshing people felt the the character of Largo was. Hmm. And I know that we had talked at length when we had done the original Thunderball review, how cardboard, uh, and I, I just don't have the gentleman's name who played him, maybe Josh, you know. Um, uh, Adolph Sully. Yeah, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. he was cardboard as and he was dubbed over as well. And, yeah. dubbed, and yeah. so, I mean, Which okay, no, that, that, that wouldn't help either. But, but uh, like I was saying to, to Scott and Josh, uh, and now there are people that are, maybe you're not hockey fans or Canadian, but <laughs> I, I thought uh, – I thought Brandon looked like a, a, a European Gila Fleur. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I, yeah. but honestly, uh, sort of what I'm getting at is in, in the, the critical reviews of the film through whether it's uh, Ebert in, in, in 83 or Variety in 2012, uh, they all gave props to mm-hmm. Brandon and, and, his, and his playing of uh, – uh, of Largo. Now, again, I guess I guess this would bleed into my acting review, but I think that it helps with the the story of the plot is having such a uh, a believable and um, compassionate and uh, refreshingly crazy, but not over the top, but not too over the top villain. Mm-hmm. And he really did steal all the all the scenes he was in. And it's funny because. For every, for anyone who's already seen Thunderball and you saw the character of Largo and what he could have brought to the table, mm-hmm. and the power that the character had, but it, how it was just it was just negligible and it was like a flatland, yeah. like a plateau. Well, it's yeah. really yeah. nice Almost. to see mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that how his character, what he brought to the story and the plot, like you could, it was refreshing and it, it revitalized it. So my plot, I gave the plot like a passing grade, barely at five, because I didn't like the plot, but. Again, there's a lot of things because of Brador and Largo that brings up my scoring for almost all the categories here. So again, mm-hmm. he did a lot for me and my and my uh, review for this film. Um, but overall, the story and the plot, it didn't do a lot for me because obviously the whole idea of like the rockets is kind of preposterous. And I, I know oh, that they yeah. had to make it. And, and, and I mean, like I get the whole like 
at the time, I think we had mentioned that the whole Bermuda Triangle thing. Sure, okay, uh, you know. Uh... <laughs> was that rocket thing? Do you think that was a nod to Thunderball's original jetpack? Do you think that's what that was? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, that I was, do think so. Oh, that was yeah, naff. Like that was that. really naff. That was Did exactly you... what that was. And go and, go and, back and, and look at that scene. Go it's back and look at that scene, guys. It's because so useless. What it, the hell is the point of that? It is just to show a little a little gadget. But look at uh, Bernie. Look at Bernie Casey when he's flying that thing. He looks so uncomfortable. It's almost <laughs> like a production still that went wrong yeah. that they ended up keeping yeah. in the film because or a production footage. It, just he's imagine so how much uncomfortable. that would cost. Like if that actually existed and it was just completely useless. Yeah, it just didn't doesn't do a like, fucking thing. Just draws attention like, to yourself. Like yeah, it's like you know, what are you? Really don't nice. want to be seen let's go in a fucking jetpack over the ocean what they should do is someone should photoshop tom cruise on that she could call that a cruise missile right? <laughs> uh, so it's clear then uh that uh brandura's largo is was definitely uh an improvement on the original largo from oh uh, yeah another i mean thing too is the original oh, largo yeah. was also challenged scene for scene in terms of also being a very nice visual mm-hmm. i have to say you know unfortunately but it's true uh I, I, I just enjoyed Luciana Paluzzi over Ad- Adolfo Selly in the original Thunderball. I thought she was a better villain than he was for that film. Oh, yeah. okay. um, now, I also really enjoyed Barbara Carrera as Fatima Blush as well. Yeah, she was they, they, were, they, they were similar characters. I found maybe uh, Volpe was a little more professional, I guess you sure. could say, a little yeah. bit of a more subtle. But Carrera was just like, it was like a, like with a psychopath. And I really. Carrera is Xenia on a top. I mean, that's, that's who she is, that's right? I guarantee you, Fompy Jansen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was channeling, channeling something there. And mm. Beast Ripple on that For character. Sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so carry on, so, my friend. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Uh, yes, so, yeah. again, I know I kind of want to, but anyways, you guys mentioned a lot of stuff about the story and the plot. Again, I, I give it a, a barely passing score. It's just because I, I don't like the idea of the plot, and it's kind of. Uh, over the top however the the interesting thing is that it the idea of the whole cold war and, and trying to pit places against each other still works because it is still the the cold war being 1983 so it works uh you know it's interesting but overall like i'm giving it a pass i was almost going to give it a four and a half but you know what i'll give it a five okay um now we go so to the four, acting four and a half uh, just just to clarify, Jeff. So four and a half, you would say, is what the plot of the film deserves. But you think that like uh, some of the character uh, uh, writing was superior, that kind of brought it to a pass. Is that what you're saying, essentially? Correct. That's okay. exactly what I'm trying to say. Yes. Oh, okay. okay. Um, and so the acting, I'm I'm giving the acting six and a half. And the reason I I, I know that's still kind of low, but because I I didn't like uh, there was a lot of characters that I didn't like like obviously uh, M and Q I couldn't give a shit about they 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 didn't do it for me I mean Q was okay M was horrible uh, Rowan Atkinson was funny in the role uh, Money Penny was barely used uh, but uh, obviously like my favorite character the entire film one okay I, I haven't even mentioned him yet but Connery was fantastic. I think he was very, very good, and it's by far it was his best role. It's like Diamonds Are Forever, he phoned it in, and you can tell that he's. I mean, he's in better shape. He's got a better rug. He's got. Mm. Uh, he's got a better <laughs> physique. Um, I also and, noticed too how tall he was. For yeah, some reason, and even in the older Bond films, like you didn't, you didn't really saw him as a very tall figure. I found like no. he was always kind of hunched a little bit and like almost like a panther, you know. But in this film, like I, he seemed more agile and he was much mm. much taller and imposing in this film than I noticed yeah. before. 
Yeah, I think I think that has everything to do with casting. I think that's because the people yeah, he's playing off here are smaller. smaller. Yeah, I think possibly. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you know, that, that's how I feel. I mean, Joseph Wiseman oh, is a tall right. guy. Uh, Robert yeah. Shaw's a tall guy. Um, who's a dude that played Crom uh, Kronstein? He's a he's a tall guy. Yeah. Um, now Goldfinger isn't a tall guy. Uh, Gert Frobe wasn't a tall guy, but he was quite rotund in a sense. He was yeah, not rotund, so that, but he yeah, was rounder. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you've got um, Blofeld, who uh, I, I, I see what you're saying, but he does have a good stature and posture in the film. But I, I think it yeah. has to do with casting, really. And that's Blofeld. fine. That's a good decision. I think, I, I think you're right too. But I, I mean, I'd also like to think that he he's very confident coming back as a role as a as an older Bond, and and he mm-hmm. does bring he does bring an air of confidence. And he's just he's like I don't he's he's definitely not phoning it in, but he's so confident that it's it's, it's coming out natural, and it's nice to see him. I think Connery had like when he was older and he started to like you know it's like hey you know what I'm gonna keep some of the gray hair I'm gonna play like older older roles, um, but like confident sort of like stronger character he always plays strong characters but you know in the 80s and 90s when he plays these older but stronger roles he's very comfortable in them mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and and people like Connery uh, as in these older stronger roles and so it comes off like this is one of those I think it's one of those roles that. Uh, you know he's confident. And anyways, I keep I keep saying that, but so again the acting I gave it a six and a half. And again I gotta okay. say um, the Largo slash Guido Fleur was wonderful because <laughs> he know, scored a hat trick. Uh, yeah, he did. He really <laughs> did. Uh, he really did. Um, and uh, like uh, even when he he jokes about slitting her throat, mm-hmm. it's 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 kind of cheesy, but it works because he has that smile where it. Another person could say that same line and do that exact same look, and it would just be like, ugh, gross. Mm-hmm. But he, and you know, but there's a menace to it, but there's also like honesty. There's just so much behind him. And, and the other thing is, in, in that scene, like, you know, Kim Basinger uh, is very uneasy with it. Like, she's like, haha, yeah. And then, but you could see that she's also worried. So, like, they have good chemistry uh, together. And also the scene when he does, like, you know, Josh was saying the war games and they were, you know, playing basically like Laser Command in Monte Carlo, which is fantastic because, mm-hmm. you know, that, I made a joke. It's like, uh, Monte Carlo, come for the backrack, stay for the Galaga. Like, you know, <laughs> they mention like, Galaga too, don't they? Yeah, I, well, I think it's in the That man's playing arcade. Galaga. That man's playing Galaga. Right? So it's like, you know, what did you do with your chips? Well, I lost them. How'd you lose them? Well, I was, I was on like, you know, stage Dig- nine of Galaga. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, you fly all the way to Monte Carlo and it's like, what, like, you know, a million dollars a night and you, all you do is play like Galaga. Cool. Yeah. But, you know, I thought that that was such an 80s nod to like, you know, casinos and like I, I love I love that scene, by the way. Don't get me wrong. That uh, was a I, good part of the film. I really I'll liked give you that because yeah. it was it was um, it was an interesting contemporary display of, of Bond and a, and a villain. Uh, because it's not just like you know they're fencing or they're like there's Mm -hmm. i mean obviously there's danger and there's like pain involved but it's not like they're not gonna die Mm -hmm. or you don't think they're really gonna die but it's really pitting them against each other and and it's interesting because then you also have like a peanut gallery watching and and then obviously with the uh you know yeah like did they have a clue what was going on by the way the fucking audience people because the thing is is what i was thinking is like Oh my God! Is someone gonna die? Either, or, or you know, is Connery gonna get kicked off the chair? And then it's gonna say insert coin. Like, like what's gonna happen? <laughs> but I like that scene a lot. And um, 
Yeah, I agree. It was a highlight of the, so, of the story. The acting, well again, the acting I thought was quite quite good. I really liked Fatima and her character. She was crazy. She was sexy. She was cool. I mean, I just mm. I know I just you know quoted TLC, but um, <laughs> it, it works. And she worked, and she did have a good chemistry with. Um, uh, Brandur, and uh, the one thing I really didn't give a shit about her throwing the snake in the car. I don't <laughs> well, like that, that was that was I, like I, I could. All, I asked Sarah when we were watching that. Sorry to interrupt you, but no, you no, guys no, can no. tell me. I, the only thing I can think is Raiders of the Lost Ark snakes. I could <laughs> only so think they were going for one of those things. That's all I could think. Snakes, yeah. yeah, like because oh, yeah, that snake's not going to do anything. It's going to scare the shit out of them. No, I mean I'll be honest. I would have crashed my car too. Uh, but I mean, if she yeah, loves the okay, snake so okay. much, why would she throw the snake in and then have him crash the car? And like, then be like, "Oh, oh, yeah. there's my my little snake." How, like, mm-hmm. I'm, if I was the snake, I'd be like, uh, "Why did you throw the snake if you didn't want it to yeah, like, die, you kill the guy?" You just like put me in a car to die. And <laughs> yeah. then you take me out and like giving me love. It's like I'm gonna yeah. just the shit out. Uh, of you. Or is that great character writing? Hmm. Well, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> um, but anyway, I just thought that, that scene was superfluous, but, uh, you know, whatever. I thought she was great in the role. Um, later, I don't know, man. Like, I mean, he was okay, but I just, I wasn't really feeling it. You're still a fan of the uh, Rick Van Nutter in... Uh, I do, I do like him. I do like him. Uh, and, <laughs> and I'll be honest, although I didn't do a lot of research on Ben Casey, but I got to say, now that I looked him up, he's got some chops in a lot of different ways. So he's quite the, uh, the Renaissance man. So I give him, I give him props for, uh, you know, a varied career. Doing so that's what he good. Does, doing, doing what, what he, he does. Did. Yeah. What I mean, did, yeah. I did kind of like I, I I thought it was funny and I it it definitely kind of threw me off a bit. It's like when he was frustrated that he didn't get in when they were like underwater. I was like, that yeah. was happening. Hmm. <laughs> like I just I didn't understand. Like I mean, and I, I know we were kind of going back and forth the reasoning why, and then we were describing. <laughs> no, I think it's this. I think it's this, and and I think that's a problem with that scene is because if you can't figure out why, I mean. Everyone ha- can have their own reasons, but I I think that's a that's a failed scene because if if three different people are disagreeing of why that mm-hmm. happened, I, I, I think that's a failure. Because mm-hmm. you should have a, a clear reason a why. A clear reason, yeah. yeah. And so you I think that's a failure for the director or uh, for that scene being done. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's just me. Um, and if we go, and Rowan Atkinson was fine. I guess they wanted to add some humor, which humor is fine. Like you always have, like, you know, there's little bits of humor in Bond films. Obviously, usually it's, uh, it's between Q and Bond or money penny about like the cutesy stuff and then so but you you uh and, and i guess yeah. and i guess you could see it's almost like uh even though obviously the, these two bond worlds are not the same being the eon and the non-eon um but it's funny you could see like well look they have a a classic british actor even though he's young in his career and then later on you have john cleese um in in the newer ones with daniel craig so you could see look you have you know, uh, uh, Mr. Bean and Blackadder, and then you have a Monty Python uh, <laughs> uh-huh. love. So, you know, the, black, is, you the know. black Knight himself. Or, and, and John English. So, uh, that, yeah. and that kind of stuff. But, um, anyways, uh, the acting I gave six and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, atmosphere, I, I like the atmosphere. I gave it a seven. I guess that's kind of high compared to what you guys are maybe going to rate it as. But I thought it was well done. I really enjoyed sort of like the the, the meeting of, of Spectre. I was going to say, like, did they just they like rented out like one of the Versailles rooms, which I thought was. <laughs> well, if you remember in the original Thunderball, it's also like in, in the back yeah, of the bank that's as true, well. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, they, no, no. Although they right. descended right. to like a Ken Adams set as opposed yeah. to like, you know, like yes. the drawing room that like Blofeld had. 
I didn't like the the scene when they like you know showed him talking and then they they had the a-bomb and then everyone all of a sudden freaked out when they showed the a-bomb like well what do you think they were going to do with the war <laughs> yeah like i'm like yeah. you guys are surprised <laughs> that when he shows you what happens when an atomic bomb goes off now you're upset aren't you guys mm-hmm. like this is your whole job is to protect the world from yeah. atomic and nuclear weapons and then when they show you the result of an explosion mm-hmm. of a nuclear weapon then you guys are just freaking the hell out it's like really <laughs> You're that surprised? Also, yeah. and I was making... General Miller looks a lot like an, a very young Alex Trebek. Uh, he does. He does. Uh, I can a, see that. Yep. Air Force General, mm-hmm. uh, which was fine. Um, Nothing wrong with a bit of Jeopardy in the film. No, no. Um, and you know, there's a, there were some funny things. Uh, I just thought, you know... I, uh, and also, I thought Fatima... She reminded me of the Baroness a bit, like a Cobra <laughs> villain. And then I was like, well, she does have a snake, so that's even closer than she I expected. She does have a snake. Yeah. She does have a snake, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you could say that uh, Connery also took the piss out of, uh, what's his name there? Or I guess, I, well, I guess oh, you could say oh, what's his name. Lippy took uh, beat the piss out of Bond, which ended up being his downfall. I was just going to say, I just want to mention that the best... The best gadget of the whole thing is this suitcase full of uh, awesomeness. Is what I call it. Oh gosh! Uh, I mean, it's in, like, I thought it was in poor taste, but also if you look at everything in the suitcase, it was in very good taste. Yeah. <laughs> what about the uh, cigarette case bluff or the cigar cigar? Uh, yeah, I, I kind of thought that was okay, and what <laughs> it, it was acted well, and that's why I, I bought sure. it. You know, but sure. Largo only had that one bouncer at the front, like only one guy. Yeah. I, was, I was surprised at that. Uh, just to reiterate, my acting is six and a half, mm-hmm. atmosphere is seven, and my story and plot is uh, five. five. Right, so that brings you to an 18.5, so you're a few points below uh, the BFG. As an 80s action film, I thought it was very well done. I did enjoy this movie quite a bit, more than I thought I was going to enjoy it. Mm. Uh, oh, and the, the horse jumping scene, I hated. I thought it was garbage. That, I think we that all me out meet the film. there, yeah. It yeah. was jumping the shark, and like I had said this before. Jumping the horse. I mean, if if uh, Kim Basinger, um, who, uh, sorry, I also thought she was quite good. Uh, she reminded me of a very, uh, of sort of like a early 80s Taylor Swift. Maybe it was, <laughs> you know, and... Um, Apparently, if we're going to talk about Taylor Swift, apparently she did have some bad blood with Irving Kirshner, the director. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Just uh, line them up, huh? <laughs> Shoot them down. I am. And so, and it was with the horse jump. I don't know, man, but like, if he stole that from Braveheart, you know yeah, that uh, well, Bond stole it from his ancestor, William Wallace. There I'm you sure. go. And, okay, that's yeah, because William that's Wallace fine. really did that, didn't he? But I'll oh, be honest with you. There's two things that are super unrealistic in that scene. One, uh, two, the just two, right? Two, well, three. Also, um, uh, the other thing is that his hair stayed on. Two, when he came out of the water. Uh, the other thing is the horse's hair, like, like Harrison Ford both, does. Have. Both the horse's hair and, and Connery's. Two, um, if Connery at his age and size lands on a hundred pound, literally soaking wet Kim Basinger, she would be dead. Hmm. And three, there should have been a floating chalk outline a la um, uh, <laughs> naked gun uh, or dragnet or something yeah yeah <laughs> that's my hot take on that <laughs> yeah right well that brings you to an 18.5 yes 
Yes. Okay. Well, guys, look, these are higher scores. Um, uh, can I begin, please, by by saying that I think Kevin McClory has a right to do what he's doing. I'm not yeah. precious about the the you know the non Eon Bond film. I don't have a problem with that. I think that Thunderball is a story that lends itself to adaptation, particularly given its uh, you know its authorship. So I, I've got no problem with any of this film existing. I'm not a purist in that sense. I like Bond content. We all do. So yeah, let's let's have it. But if you're going to do it, man, I think it's got to be better than this. I disagree with both of you on a lot of these points, but I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to shoot you down because you've made good cases. I am going to, however, um, tell you that I failed the story. I gave it a four to start with um, and for for a lot of different reasons. Um, I think that this particularly something that stood out to me when I watched it and I get it right. I mean, we're in the James Bond world. I get it. But. I think that the misogyny in this picture is even more transparent than in some of the other ones. And yes, I am aware of what that word means. Um, I think that you've got a lot more just quite plain sexually violated characters going through this plot. And unfortunately, any sort of agency that she has is diminished because to me, Domino played by Kim Basinger here is just victim after victim after victim and and it's like the only way I can see her is as a uh, you know a, a helpless uh, abused victim and and the agency that she's offered is almost like well we should we should you know mm -hmm. like that scene particularly that bothers me is that one in the spa and I know that other Bond films have done it and it's very much a trope of the time but you know she's sexually violated by James Bond here and you saw her face when, when he leaves and the real masseuse comes yeah. in she's like oh yeah. my god I've been sexually violated and then oh, you can then you can seems... hear you can fucking hear the the ellipsis you can hear the ellipsis and then, oh, I've been sexually violated. And she yeah. then has that sort of, oh, that's really cool. Like, that was actually kind of fun that that strange man felt me up. And, like, that shit well, yeah. was just fucking <sighs> wrong. And, of course, you got you got Largo, who I know it's written well for his character, but he's in that sort of wank tank looking at her dance and all that shit. Yes. Like, that, that just, I just think that stuff is unnecessary for the character <laughs> yeah. writing. Bond does not come across here to me as, yeah, he's Sean Connery, but he doesn't come across here to me as a particularly nice guy. I mean, his idea of exercise is, is just fucking girls in this movie. Like, he needs to go to Shrublands so that he can get <laughs> back in shape. He scuba dives, he has sex with two girls, he, he and, and before he even screws, uh, uh, Domino, he feels her up and violates her. Like I just felt like that side of Bond here was really lecherous and really quite kind of stared at me a little bit through the movie, and I didn't like that. I, I just didn't. I didn't like it. Now you could say, you know, Laura Mulvey maybe would that it's a little bit less dangerous because it's so pronounced in this movie, whereas the earlier Bond, it, it's all nuanced, right? Like uh, I mean, there's nothing nuanced about the way Pat Fearing is treated in Thunderball or Pussy Galore and Goldfinger, but I feel like. The, the the sort of the, the violation of women in this movie it's it's just I, I don't I, I feel as a guy right I like looking at beautiful women you know I like looking at beautiful men whatever but in movies I sure I, I'm, I'm attracted to Kim Basinger she's a very attractive sure. she's a great figure on, on yeah. the screen yes. but I'm distracted by my admiration of her this is not me watching Vesper Lynn in Casino Royale and it, I know it doesn't need to be it's it's 25 years before that but I still think that Melina Havelock is kicking it out the park when we're watching her. We're not just watching her because she's got a great figure. We're not just watching her, you know, dance around and, and it's become vapid. I, yeah. I feel like, uh, I just feel like the women in this film uh, are, that their power is only sexual. 
And yeah, I feel like right. Fatima Blush sure. is no different. No different. I think that she's cool. Xenia, Xenia Anata, now, I mean, we talked about her a few moments ago in GoldenEye. She has got a very strong sexual character as well, obviously. But she's an awesome yeah. figure in that true sense of the word uh, or the true sense of the adjective. I couldn't get past that male gaze in this movie like it was mm. and i know we're in the bond world right so it seems kind of dumb why are you even bringing this mm. to the table scott i i just couldn't oh, yes, i couldn't get past it man i couldn't get past it and other things in the story that i thought really failed it like uh, um they're trying to give this movie uh, a roger moore type feel right to compete with the levity of the eon franchise at the time and i get that but i think that it's it's going it's going against the movie because it's it's too much casino royale like that suitcase isn't just like Roger Moore pulling out the bottle of vodka from his mm. knapsack yeah. in View to a Kill. It's like pulling out, like, this was his only fucking suitcase, right? Like, it, it is a suitcase <laughs> made for carrying prized, luxurious food. Like, that's what it is. Whereas yeah. in the mo- in a View to a Kill, he pulls this out of his knapsack that also carries microchips and shit. Like, I feel like there's so much more setup to the gags in this movie. Like, there are definitely spoof elements that make me feel like, and I'm not just expecting Clouseau to jump out of the cupboard yeah, at any moment, much. you know? There's so, many tonal, yeah. there's so many tonal shifts in this movie on what, on what well, they wanted to, to do with it. And that could yeah. have to do with the, so much, uh, uh, all the cooks in the kitchen that are that this movie has yeah. a feel yeah. of, you know what I mean? I th- it does I have a lot of that. It's not, yeah. Like I was saying before, although we were, when you were talking about sort of all the mishaps going on in regarding production, and I think this is also possibly part of the whole thing where it's it's not an EOP production, and hmm. I think it, it might that might be a part of that as well. But you're maybe. right, Scott. Maybe, maybe it didn't. Maybe it didn't get through the filter. I I, I don't know. I just yeah. uh, I didn't like it. But I thought the script was was terrible. Um, it, it was, was silly. I gave the story yeah. for yeah. for all these yeah, things. Totally. Like I get it. M's yeah. character needs to be believable in order for anything that Bond is doing <laughs> to be believable. Like you said it, Josh. Uh, I believe a few moments ago, where you were talking about how the M character edward fox doesn't play m in a believable way he's a little over the top and he and he's completely stupid all he does is shout in this movie i can't see connery's bond accepting orders from this guy no you know i mean the the or the earlier thunderball that's the point not that i agree not that i don't uh, agree with you but he has to because that's his superior right to be honest okay okay. but you want to cast them sorry you just want to cast him so that you can believe that. I mean, oh, he looks absolutely. like such a fud, you know. And yeah. why does? Sorry, Jeff, you you go on, man. Before I carry. No, no, no. I was I was gonna say it's like because when you see the scene with M and Bond, I mean, one maybe it's because also literally the the physical blocking of the scene where like I think he's sitting down at one point and, and Bond is standing up, but like Bond, you, you think like Bond's in charge compared to M because you just mm-hmm. feel like. M is so emasculated and just yes. like he's just so whiny and then Bond's kind of like the voice of reason and he's cool calm and collected it's like you don't there's no there's if he's in charge it's like is he really because nobody even the way the the film was shot like physically like yeah, yeah. he doesn't have any air of of um of power or, or um influence yeah gravity influence. there's just no gravity yeah, to him no in those gravity. scenes yeah and like yeah. and like his assistant there like he felt like I don't know, like he worked in the post office or something yeah. like that. Like, yeah. There, there was no yeah, like, exactly. you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. there, there, there wasn't, you know, like the, uh, you know, there were, there were, there wasn't like the chief of staff, like and free eyes only, or even no. Bernard Lee or Frederick Gray kind of feel to any of these. Uh, no, but that's whatsoever. my point. 
That's my they point. They were like nebbish and castrated almost. This is like and giant. This is like James Bond. Yeah. Okay. You, yeah. you say you say Connery's Bond's confident. You say Connery's. I still think he's phoning it in, but he's good at it, and that's why he's enjoying phoning it in. Yeah. I don't think he's working hard. So what I'm watching is Connery's James Bond, a little older, a little more fit, a little bit more comfortable in his loafers, with yeah. all of these comedians around him. All of this nonsense. <laughs> it's like Carnival. Yeah. Now, I mean, if I if yeah, I want I if I want to go yeah. to Carnival, that's great. But I want to see a James Bond movie yeah. where there's a bit of that with the Roger like yeah. Roger Moore, you know. It's pretty bad. When, ah, man, it's when, bizarre. It's, it, it's pretty bad when when you accept uh, you know Roger Moore dresses a clown in octopus yeah. over the over these officials, you know, you know, bossing James Bond. Absolutely. Around. Well, as silly yeah. as that is, you got a plot point for that, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Why does yeah. by the way? Why does Bond sneak onto the yacht? in scuba gear when he's been given an invitation anyway for that day. It never made well, sense to me. I wondered about that too. And why does Domino, why is she allowed to go down there with the seals? That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, and they yeah. let her kill him? Like, uh, yeah, exactly, really? right? Like, what? and I, I don't like the double standard, and I know it's a white double standard. I get that, you know, the privileged white male double standard, but why is it okay for Bond to sexually violate Domino where, uh, and when we get to North Africa, that the real fear is there when, when the, you know, the people with dark skin are coming upon her? Oh, like, I feel yeah. like, it's just, to yeah. me, all that stuff is really transparent. It's not properly... Um, it's not put together no. very, very well in no. what they're trying to do. The maybe. biases are really you, flat out there on the table. If you look at the massage parlor scene, which really didn't oh, even have yeah. to happen, oh, no, but if you look at it, like, Bond was just pretending to be a masseuse, okay, and that's kind of off in nice. itself. But then, like, she tells him to go down lower. Yeah. So then that puts the scene that, in a problematic Exactly. Yeah. Well done. That's it. Yes. Position. Bond getting the information, no problem. But the way yeah. then she, he, he takes advantage of what she's like, oh, no, no, like, she yeah. thinks she's getting a massage from you know, yeah. a professional and says, yeah, take care of that part of my body. And even that, of course, is sleazy, right? Like we, we yeah, I just really, guys, I can't get over that stuff. I thought the dialogue oh, was poor. Right. Like I just thought Connery was shitting it out of the pan, to be honest, for me, I, I wasn't really engaged by him. If I, I won't watch this movie again, I tell you, I will not watch this movie again, I, but to laugh at some of this stuff. Oh, I don't, yeah. I don't take any of that sort of sexual discrimination lightly. I don't like it in the Bond franchise. I've never liked it. But I I appreciate as part of the character's chauvinism, as part of the character's charm under Connery's mantle. I get that. But right. it's a, it's a very very uh, it's a charm that sometimes like you don't even realize until the end. You know that yeah. you kind of had. You know, like you going over that whole sequence with Domino and stuff like that. And I remembered that, but then I didn't include it. Like I mm -hmm. mentioned in my summary as well. And mm -hmm. it's one of those things where you just don't think about, and you kind of see how. Even like even when it's less subtle or more yeah. subtle, like in the older films, and it's more transparent here, it can sometimes trick you in a way where you don't realize it until afterwards, until yeah. someone <laughs> points it out. And this goes to show just how like, you know, there are mm. flaws in the James Bond franchise that definitely need to be addressed in the modern mm. world. And, and they to... are. I think they have been addressed properly they in have. some respects. Yeah. You know, they have. They have. But, but but you have to go back and watch these older films. I think with a different lens. I guess mm -hmm. you could say. Yeah. Well, with the massage part, I just and I want to I just want to touch upon what your pun intended um, <laughs> about uh, that scene is I, I didn't like it because like at the end when she's like, oh, my God, you know, who was that guy? He just touched me everywhere. And then she's like, well, it's OK. I was literally it, it reminded me of like those shows like laughing where they're like. It's like, oh, well, yeah, and then you yeah. have, to not, you have exactly. some weird, like, little like noise, yeah. and then it cuts to the next scene. It's like, that's not cool. That was total bullshit. Like, then, I was like, oh, and then you God. also get a tonal backlash where like maybe the writing realized, you know, they they got to kind of address this somehow. Mm -hmm. And then they have Bond's kind of like 
uh, non-apology. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at, yeah, at that didn't bar, suit at, at the bar in the casino. Yeah, right? I know, but it, well, yes, but I, at the same time, like all that, all that, like when you could see her, just think about it, it's like, well, at least he was hot. Like that's literally mm-hmm. what it, that's. Like, that's, that's exactly it. That's exactly well, right. That's uh, that's all that the female character oh, is made of, so right? Garbage. I was it's like, seriously, yeah. Oh. Yeah, and I know right. we're picking apart a film that's 40 years old and the times are different. I know that. And we've had so many discussions on the show, guys, haven't we? Where we've been talking about yeah. and like yeah. this. Yeah, I mean, yes. we know we're dealing with a different time and a different, yep. a different we culture. We all have our thresholds, norm. though, right? We, we all have yeah, our, our thresholds where sometimes exactly. we're, just, uh, uh, we're yeah. kind of just like uh, numbed by these things and we just kind of yeah. like just accept them. Um, and this will put me off. Exactly. Exactly. And, that, and, then and that's, I accept and that's that. totally understandable, dude. Totally uh, understandable. Anyway, the acting for me, I gave the acting a five, just passable. I agree with everything that has been said about Barbara Carrera and about the performance. I I really think that Brando and Carrera uh, steal the show here in terms of performance. Um, All of the all of the minor roles are silly. They are truly silly. They're like. They're just like fireworks that kind of fly around and like those little. I, I come on, guys! I don't care how much I like Black Adder, and I do like Black Adder. <laughs> this guy's role, this is so stupid it in the was movie. Superfluous. It didn't need to be there. It no. did, and and that's it. There's so much in this movie that There's doesn't so need right. to be there, and I I, think, I can't pass a movie that that's just full of these sort of silly little ticker tape things. Like it's yeah, just... like did they need to have like Patricia Fearing again in Shrublands? Did they need to have like the girl in? Well, NASA? I didn't mind her, but I tell you what, her David Bowie haircut, man, that was wild. Like she had. <laughs> She had Either a the crazy. Girl from or Patricia Fearing. Pat Fearing's hair was yeah. was like nuts, and I know it was of the time. And that's the other thing about Connery too. It's like he was been verithaned in this film. Like his whole body was varnished. <laughs> he like, had eyeliner. Uh, he did have eyeliner. You already did. And you could and you could see like he you could see like the uh, what is it the uh, the tan line where he shaved his his unibrow. Yeah, yeah. You could totally yeah. see that. Like, you yeah. could see it because you, you couldn't see it in the <laughs> earlier ones. Anyway, the, uh, I guess maybe Pat Fearing's here. Maybe it's not, but more like Rod Stewart, wasn't it? It was more like a Rod Stewart oh, haircut. It, now, while yeah. I agree with you uh, about, uh, yeah, Rod Stewart hair is definitely yeah, um, I think that's better. what I thought yeah. more more so than Bully. But oh, what yeah. I agree, what I what I agree with you in terms of like you know how Domino's character, like how she was given like some development close to the Fleming novel, and then it was kind of like you know uh, almost deconstructed by you know that massage scene. Yeah. Uh, not deconstructed, torn down, I guess mm. you could say, by that mm. machine yeah. sequence. I do disagree with you that, like, I found that the give and take of the relationship between Bond and Fearing, as well as uh, Bond and, like, the NASA girl, I found those were, like, equals on, on, on the same playing field sexual dynamics that I think that were, that were fine. Well, I never was, I never disagree with that point. I yeah. didn't have a problem with those relationships, but yeah, that's like, not... I, I, I don't think those parts are misogynistic, but as a whole, I can see how that would con- contribute to the whole pot of well, okay misogyny. yeah fair enough yes i yeah. did say i did say that bond just used them as exercise you were right to call me out on that i mean they did give and i mean she fatima blush was giving as good as bond was giving you know that I mean, I, totally I, I, th- that's fine totally. i, I i'm again, okay with she's that she's also reduced to being like I'm, I'm i simply exist because i like first i can like, do it yeah she's like the dark side of sex basically is what yeah. she's representing that's mm-hmm. right yeah. anyway i, I, I did that's I, why I prefer like you know in, in the end Luciana Paluzzi because she's so unapologetic about being a villain and she doesn't care you know that Bond was just playing her like mm-hmm. she just you know like I'm that doesn't matter like you know I'm not apologizing for who I am I'm not going to be redeemed 
by you, you know, like, yeah, I, 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 I think I just found uh, Fiona Volpe a, a little stronger character, I guess. But that's uh, tone, buddy. It's tone of film. Yeah. You got, you, I mean, come on, you got Terrence directing Young directing that movie. And so it's tight. It's, it's not about the laughs so much as it is about the, the small chuckles here and there. It's not, it's not yeah. about the colors and the, the gags. It, it's about the tone. And that tone of Thunderball is serious and it's, it's cold. Yeah. And yeah. her character's dialogue you listen to and you believe because it's filmed with a, with, with sort of a generous touch and it's filmed with like a, a nuance here everything is carnival that's all i can keep saying like connery <laughs> is, is in a world of nonsense and we're expected to go along with that world of nonsense and that's why my atmosphere mark is also quite low i mean for acting i gave it five because i agree with you guys the strong are very strong but most of the film including connery i'm afraid that's how i feel anyway it's just kind mm. of boring or dumb uh connery's good he looks fit he's having yeah. fun but he's still phoning this performance in i i think i atmosphere i i gave a low mark i i gave a five i passed it okay Okay. um i was amused by the the wardrobe choices i find the the contemporary touches in the film make it obviously not timeless but i kind of like that too because it makes it different to the other bond movies and so there is an element of it being a different film and and i'm cool with that because i think a bond adaptation that isn't eon should have a different flavor i just don't like this particular flavor but Mm. you know all over the place there's so much going on in this movie that it's really difficult to figure out what the film wants me to look at. Does it want me to listen to the yes. score, look at the motorcycle jumps? Does it want me to notice the, uh. the high heels that have that are smoking because the character's been blown up? There's a, oh, uh, you know, I, I've got I've got sharks that are being injured here, and, and let me tell you what, they're being injured in this oh. movie. I don't care. Oh yeah, the you sharks. Know, I watched the whole credits twice to see if I could find a message about no animals were harmed, and I didn't see it um, because the I horse think, survived somehow. But well, the anyway. horse survived somehow. Yeah, yeah. I suppose when you're when you're doing a jump like that, the horse can survive. I think uh, it would have been good if then if the right. horse like went underwater, then came up and it was just like six hundred different like glue sticks. <laughs> well, do you know what? They're only a step away from that in this movie. I think with the yeah. gags, I really think so. Well, doesn't like, uh, doesn't uh, Algernon put like a glue stick up his nose? Oh, Algernon, man! Oh yeah, oh, that was he, funny. Algernon sounds to me like he's come off the back lot of the Oliver musical. Like, why do they have these? Yeah, he sounded like Michael Caine. Oh, but come well, on, it's like cock- it's the Cockney, right? That accent was just ridiculous. Dick, Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins would have done yeah, better than that yeah. accent. Yeah. Oh, man, that would be great. And I got no problem with a Cockney accent. That's not no, what I'm going at not. here. It just is so jarring when you've got Connery trying to be Connery. And, and then you've got this guy like, blah, 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 blah. And he kept asking these his lines were ridiculous. His dialogue was so shit. He had no authority over nope. or even he didn't have problem. any barbs he, he couldn't compete with connery in those scenes he was like he was like a little dog circling his feet like oh, oh, throw me throw me that some was... cool scraps about your latest mission or blah 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 exactly. i thought yeah. it was so dumb uh, and, I, and it's so true and, and i'll say it again like what you're saying here is like the authority had no authority in this film that was uh, that was another <laughs> problem right like we're saying like m and q and all these other you know uh either they're um subordinates or uh or even like or, the, or like the uh, no un assault. council like the un council yeah, that was garbage oh they total had, jokers yeah. they were just freaking out completely yeah. like, like, like you, you, the you, heads cut off even like in uh-huh. thunderball when you have like the foreign secretary or whatever he was right like he was had gravitas he was yeah. arrogant but at the same time he was believable in his role you know like yeah. Well, I guess we'll have to find like, out, can't we? You know what I mean? Like, and it's, it's a totally different attitude. Yeah. And well, then I tell you, M has a gavel. 
Like, oh yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, he needs it obviously because sometimes his throat's well, going to get tired from shouting. Because he can't, he can't hold a conversation or have anyone because he's such a goofball. He probably needs a gavel. In he needs every it to get control. No one's yeah. going to listen to get control of the situation. Uh, right, listen, exactly. guys, it's oh, um, it, it's it's a sad state of affairs when you find yourself waiting for a motion picture to end. And although I like Connery, I was waiting for this movie to end. I will not watch it again. Just, even the, even the, the, the why 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 put the map to Tears of Allah in your girlfriend's <laughs> necklace? Like what yeah. the fuck is that? <laughs> yes. like, what is that? And what's what's, what's yeah. that? And did you notice how the map looked like a big hairy dick? Did you notice that? Yeah, it did. <laughs> like all it's... these little things just make me feel like I'm watching a spoof. Like and and I I can't take it seriously when I know Connery is trying or wanting me to take it seriously. I can't do it. It's yeah. it's just so the tones are just not right in this movie for me. Uh, maybe I failed the wrong component here, but I think ultimately the score of fourteen is fair in, in my books. Anyway, I I agree with what you guys are saying about about the movie having features that would make it rewatchable and make it interesting and make it enjoyable and make it bond and bond even like Josh is suggesting bond a little better because it cuts out some of the the, the excess of Thunderball the bloat but ultimately the tone was what captures me uh, you know the bond feel is what captures me lots of other ways you can do it lots of other directors and producers can do it actors can do it Kevin McClory did not get it here and he's got a right to try but he failed for me with Never Say Never Again so I'm 14 overall Jeff's 18.5 <laughs> and Josh is 21 I mean right. how, I, do, I, how do our listeners feel about Never Say Never Again let us know yes. e- email us at bondbynumbers3 at gmail.com do you agree with us do you agree with me? Do you agree with with Jeff or Josh? I mean, where where do you see things lying? Hit us up on Nothing the socials. Let us know. Friendly debate to make things. Yeah, easy. yeah. Of course. I mean, I, I got a little bit hot in the in the seat there towards the end, guys. But that's <laughs> that's just how I feel about it, you know. And I'm <laughs> I would love to see when these works get into the public domain. I'd love to see other people try to do Bond in in the non-Eon way. I've got no problem with that, you know? Yeah. And we were we were close to it, weren't we, Josh, in Ottawa with Lee Mars and For Your Eyes Only and stuff? I, I, don't, I, I still think that might or yeah, I still think that might still be on the go, but I All think right. with the COVID situation, probably not yeah. yet. No, no, of course not now, but it would be interesting to see if, if there's anything gonna jump up in the next in the next few uh, months or a couple of years maybe. And maybe once Bond twenty five, uh once no time to die is out and, and kind of you know yeah. the crust the crust has been chewed with that one maybe maybe other camps will start you know popping up their heads and it would be interesting to see which of these Fleming stories now in the public domain can be made um, made viable by other studios. I, I don't have a problem with it, but Kevin I, McClory I think, really, I just feel like this was maybe McClory had fought so long, so hard. I finally got it. And phew, it's kind of like, you know, where you're, you're trying, I don't know, I'm trying to turn this into a sexual metaphor here and that's not appropriate, or maybe it is, but <laughs> it's kind of like a premature, it's inappropriately you know, you, you work so hard to, to get that, to get that first experience. And I think we're in consensus that, you know, like despite, you know, some, some positive changes or what whatnot, the second time around, which is usually to say is better, you know, yeah, not in this yeah. particular case. <laughs> not in this case. Well, not in, my, not in the case for me, at least. Um, but <laughs> it, it, is it fun to see Connery? Yeah, it's fun to see Connery. Yeah, it, is some of the stuff cool? Yes, I, some I, of the I, sets I, are cool. I think in a way, too, that I think that what kind of made me a little blind to some of the more flaws of this movie was mm-hmm. that it was good to see Connery at least, uh, not to say that he wasn't phoning it in, but at least right. to see him kind of like, you know, like just it's good to see him again, I guess sure, you could say sure. in, in that sense. Yeah. And then you also had very dynamic villains that you were drawn to. 
And I think that, you know, mm-hmm. if you take if you take the story out of that, the story and the writing out of that uh, dynamic, mm-hmm. you can enjoy the film on that, on those grounds. But then yeah. as a whole, I can see where you're coming from as well. And we all have our thresholds, too, in terms of how yeah. numb that we can get by some of the, you know, uh, male toxicity, I guess mm-hmm. you could say, mm-hmm. uh, that existed back at that time. I enjoyed this film just as sort of like I was saying before, like, you know, the 80s, early 80s, 80s was kind of the renaissance for action films. And I guess it would kind of came with the technology of the time, um, if you will. There's a lot of good action films. Obviously, they're dated now. But like when all those action movies, like whether it be, you know, mm-hmm. Rambo or like a Chuck Norris, like <laughs> Delta Force or Firewalker, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme movies, regardless, um, so I liked it because it was right at that time of when action movies were big and, and they you know, they were juicy. And so I, I enjoyed it on an 80s action movie level Fair as enough. a Bond film. As a Bond film, like I, I said, like it, it, it wasn't, I mean, obviously it, it is what it is. And it, it felt quite different because it was different from an EM production. really. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, like I said, I enjoyed Connery, but, but I do agree with what you're saying is that it, it was just there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts here that that don't flow don't sink but um i enjoyed it as a viewer detached like i said i, I can mm. always do that i can mm. detach myself in this case i did and yeah, i, I wasn't able to this time yeah film no and that's fine um but yeah i probably won't watch it again but uh i enjoyed it as a watch i'll put it that way with the beer i enjoyed myself I will uh, I will search out and I will watch the domination ge- scenes again because I like the casino stuff I liked all of that stuff. Yeah, that was fun. And I liked uh, what you were saying about it being okay and quite celebrating its contemporariness. I, I agree with everything you said about that stuff, and I, I like those scenes. They played out well, apart from the fake apology. Yeah, and again, um, from looking at some of the reviews, and uh, it's nice to see that. A lot of the people, they really appreciated the acting of Brandor. Uh, it was probably mm-hmm. the highlight for a lot of these people. And they were, But they also said that they did appreciate to see bon, um, Connery's Bond and that he was confident in obviously pulling in a, a better uh, version of Bond uh, from his last deflated, uh, you know, and, and phoned-in role of Damazar Forever. So, But again, though... But they might also simply just be, you know, sick of Roger Moore as well. Well, that's the thing is that they're <laughs> saying like, well, yeah, exactly. They're like, well, look at, and they, they were comparing because obviously he's he's a contemporary at the time, and also it being released basically at the same time as well with Octopussy, um, and Octopussy not getting as good of reviews on some of them uh, compared to <laughs> compared to this. Yeah, uh, and you know, it, it is interesting because this is you know, if you want to say an off-brand. Of Bond yeah, compared yeah. to the actual, and then some people not liking it much because, but again, they're two different types of bonds. I, I probably won't watch it again, but mm-hmm. like I said, mm-hmm. detached, I enjoyed it as an early '80s action film. All right. Well, yeah, look- I'm. I probably wouldn't watch it again either. Um, not you know, it might be on like TV in the background if I caught it or whatever, or maybe yeah, go to YouTube I, to I look for a certain fair. scene, yeah, or look for yeah. a certain scene perhaps. But uh, yeah. Well, I, yeah. I do you know what, guys? I I, I got to admit something. I had to buy it. I had to download it. <laughs> oh my God. I, had to, I had to buy this one, yeah. 
I didn't I rent I didn't rent it because you know the rental price for me over here was very close to the buying and I'm like you know what it, oh, it's, okay, a, it's a bond I'm gonna get it and now I'm like okay. shit I spent an extra three, <laughs> three pounds fifty that I didn't no. have to I didn't have to spend on this one but it is what it is and uh, and here we are come to the end of another episode so guys thank you very much for this chat it was great fun fair points all gentlemen and I did enjoy the conversation now bomb by numbers has got a couple of fun episodes in the works uh, we are gonna we're working right now on an episode that focuses on the life and times and contributions to bond by Tom Mankiewicz uh, and we'll get to that in a, in a little while we've also got a what if musical feature coming up so it'll be our um, another little what if led by the roulette on bond music and songs and we'll talk about that a little while later too and of course we've got another deep dive soundtrack episode coming up too. Um, but we're not going to give away all the remaining episode ideas we got for the year. So uh, those are just three that we've got coming down the pipeline, and we'll get to those in, in due time. So uh, yes. until until next time, it's uh, it's goodbye from me over here in Scotland. And uh, goodbye from me here in uh, Ottawa. And goodbye from me in Ottawa, but uh, farther... Uh, <laughs> farther afield. Farther south. Farther yes. south. <laughs> Ottawa, Ottawa proper. Ottawa there proper, I guess you could say. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right, guys. Keep keep yourself safe, and uh, and thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll we'll see you back here very soon. Cheers. Take care.